0: Hey, fellow album divers, Trevor here. And before we dive into Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, I wanted to begin with a couple of caveats. The first is that I got COVID in the midst of recording this and I'm still getting through it. So if my voice is a little shot throughout, I do apologize for that. The second though, is as much fun as this podcast is to create, an album with as much history and cultural relevance as this one is an intimidating task to undertake to say the least. For this reason, in addition to hours of our own research, we asked several listeners, music podcasters, and friends to contribute their thoughts on this album. If you submitted audio for that purpose, listen for your voice sprinkled in throughout the episode. We also asked music historian James Campion, who just completed his new book on Hey Jude, entitled Take a Sad Song, and writer Katie Darby Mullins, who was featured on our Counting Crows deep dive last year, to give us a proper synopsis of this album from experts that truly have something valuable to say on its behalf. You'll hear their voices next. Fittingly, I suppose, though this task is a large one, we're going to try with a little help from our friends. Enjoy.
1: So, in May of 2017, I was asked by the Aquarian Weekly, where I am an associate editor, to write about the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts called Band in which I, I titled it, Love to Turn You On. And in that piece, I point out four key elements that indelibly mark its dramatic impact and widespread influence. And those things are timing, arrogance, creativity, and grandeur. So certainly timing is a big deal. For the Beatles, they hadn't been in the public eye for a while, they stopped touring in 1966. And they had changed their look, their attitudes on life. Uh, Certainly, their extended drug use, specifically LSD, and just their disparate lives. Because up until that point, they were, as Mick Jagger called them, the four headed monster. So the timing was perfect. It came out in June of that year. And of course, it was this shockwave because people had not seen the Beatles with mustaches and granny glasses and haircuts like that, uh, all wearing those uniforms, which were color splash compared to the monochrome uniforms that they are, you know, costumes that they used to wear. And therein lies the, the arrogance of it was just that it was, a, it was a clearly marked artistic statement that immediately drew accolades, but also drew blowback. You know, what do these guys think they are? But I think that it was almost universally embraced, especially by other artists at the time, specifically like, see, Jimi Hendrix or, uh, you know, most famously Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys and um but it, there was a true arrogance uh, uh that the Beatles had that was unmarked uh, or I should say unmatched and it was plenty marked and uh they were they were just uh, on their own plane and and this album and it truly was an album and a great statement by them uh was an under really underlined that the creativity is um you know unquestioned um just the use of uh, the chordal changes in, in, in on this record, the use of uh, strings, the use of um, the styles that they're playing with here. And, and the maturity of the lyrics that it started to build from Rubber Soul through Revolver, the two records that everyone really recognizes as the precursor to Sgt. Pepper's, and the idea that they could write a song like She's Leaving Home. Or when I'm 64, or within you without you. So uh, and, and, and of course, the culmination of a day in the life. So, so there was an incredible amount of creativity. The Beatles beginning with Strawberry Fields Forever and uh, Penny Lane. Incredible single that that those songs could have been on the album, but it showed the musical world and their fans and the critics what they were, what was about to happen. And still they were unprepared for it. So they, they were at their creative peak. And then the grandeur of it all—the the the record album cover, the, putting the lyrics on the back—just the presentation of it was something big. Again, as I say, it's like a statement. And you know, one of the things that I I, I talk about in the piece, and I kind of finish up with, is can you imagine in nineteen sixty—and this is fifty years later, right in twenty seventeen? So can you imagine in sixty seven when *Sgt. Pepper's* came out, there would be. A magazine like the Aquarian that would put on the cover something that was written and released in 1917—that seems absurd. But the, as my good friend Rob Sheffield from Rolling Stone magazine told me from my latest book, you know, the Beatles didn't happen. They're—they're they're happening. So there's always a new generation that—that that embraces their their grandeur, their creativity, their arrogance, and and even back then, their timing. I will say one last thing about Sgt. Peppers. It's the one thing that makes the Beatles so good as they can be grandiose to make this you know really arrogant artistic statement. But think about the songs on this record. They're all about daily events, getting on the bus, going to school, hanging out with the meter maid, uh, eating Kellogg cereal, um, hanging out with your buddies and getting high, having f- inner fighting with your with your significant others, uh, trying to connect with family. These are pretty standard themes that you find in most great art. So Sgt. Pepper's has all that. I thank the guys and album divers for having me on. And I still get a huge kick out of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And I hope you guys are getting a even bigger kick diving deeper into it.
2: The problem with a record like Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is that it's got so many different vectors of significance, it's almost impossible to talk about it. Both McCartney and the legendary George Martin acknowledged the Beach Boys' classic Pet Sounds as an influence. Few records would be strong enough to hold the weight of that comparison, but Sgt. Peppers does. So what do you address? The importance of the record and a track like A Day in the Life, which very well might be the most perfectly executed song and blend of Lyndon McCartney that exists? Do you discuss the way it at least loosely adheres to a concept record idea? The ridiculous story that, with a little help from my friends, originally began, What would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you all throw tomatoes at me? It's said Ringo refused to sing that because, as crazy as Beatles shows were, people might have done so. Maybe you talk about the dissonance between what people think getting better is and what it actually is. It's not insignificant to me that as McCartney sings, you've got to admit it's getting better. Lennon is backing him by singing, It Couldn't Get Much Worse. What about the perfect chamber pot part break of She's Leaving Home? You know what? No, I'm going to go completely rogue and say, I don't think we talk about how much fun Lovely Rita is, and that really bums me out. From McCartney's first vocalization, the song is beatific. Is it silly? Who cares? The Beatles have plenty of songs we can and should scrutinize academically, but Lovely Rita is everything that's perfect about the band. Not just what they have to say, which is always interesting, but how they make you feel. Remember the first time you heard the Beatles? It was about feeling, not thinking. I'll be the first person to tell you the way McCartney's voice drags on the last note of meter maid in the chorus always pulls my heartstrings the same way something far less nonsensical would. I have a deep affection for both the speaker and this very strange woman he is courting. For example, in a cap she looked much older and the bag across her shoulder made her look a bit like a military man isn't generally considered to be a high compliment. Partially, I think I love it so much because the music is coaxing me into good humor about them. The ragtime piano breakdown after McCartney screams, Rita! is pure delight, and the weird wah, 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 wah after that first verse is particularly fun. But if I'm being honest, my draw towards lovely Rita is this. The Beatles were my first favorite band from when I was a toddler, which is before I had the consciousness to examine why something was good and just knew that it was. Lovely Rita has remained a perfect example of why sometimes things are just good, and we should accept that. How can a record be big enough for a fun song like this and When I'm 64, and also the absolute seriousness of She's Leaving Home and A Day in the Life? Well, that's the magic of the Beatles. They all make me feel something as strongly as possible.
0: Welcome to Album Divers. This is a podcast created by two music lovers who still remember listening to albums from start to finish the way the artists intended. We give history, track-by-track analysis, and delve into the music and lyrics of some of the best albums of the past and today. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Welcome to Album Divers. I'm Trevor. And I'm Shane. On this podcast, we take turns choosing albums to discuss and review. We alternate between an album that was released this calendar year and one that's been around a while. Alright Trevor, this is a big one. Yeah, this is a big one to say the least. We are going back to May 26, 1967. This one needs no introduction. This is The Beatles and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band.
3: This is one of those iconic albums we knew we would eventually have to tackle. It's been a lot of fun listening to it, track by track, reading about the history, and diving into some of the backstories of of the Beatles, what led to this album, and its impact on society and how it's transcended its time and still regarded as one of the greatest albums of all time today and one that people from all generations can enjoy. But it was certainly quite the challenge to try to dive into all of that information and really understand the
0: magnitude and weight of everything this album has in it. Absolutely. And there's going to be some like this, and maybe this is the biggest one. In our first year, we tackled Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. I was feeling the same amount of pressure when we did that one of just realizing there is not something we can bring to the table that hasn't already been said about this album. So hopefully... What we can bring is two guys that are kind of jumping into this one for the first time, at least in the sense of really dissecting and listening to these tracks start to finish. I suppose I'm just speaking for myself on that. What was your experience prior to us diving in? Had you listened to this album with any intention before we really decided to do this one? or? Well, I'm sure I've listened to the album from start to finish at some point in the past, but it was
3: probably in my childhood because my dad has this in his vinyl collection, and, and I'm sure he spun it a couple times or two when we were kids. I knew a lot of the songs fairly well and the message or meaning behind them and some of the information surrounding the lyrics. But I've never gone through track by track, start to finish as an adult with the intention to
0: truly understand the album in its completeness. I mean in some ways this is the very first time that somebody put songs in place for that purpose and to have an album be a concept album as we'll talk when we get into the history some of that concept fell apart a little bit as they went but nonetheless this was by some people's account the first concept album from start to finish and like you said it's on so many lists the top album ever and for me to decide now in my mid-30s, that I need to listen to this from beginning to end. I think I've been procrastinating on that a bit, perhaps. And like you, I, I knew all these songs. I don't think there was a song in this album that I didn't feel like I really knew very well, but putting it in a order and listening to them from start to finish, that's something that I really hadn't done up until we decided to tackle this one.
3: Yeah, we'll definitely have to talk about that idea of this being a concept album. It definitely had a, a unifying theme in that, The Beatles were trying to reinvent themselves and and present themselves as this fictitious band. But even Lennon himself has said that it's not truly a concept album. You mentioned earlier that we tackled Pet Sounds. And when we talked about Pet Sounds, we mentioned that Brian Wilson was inspired by the Beatles album Rubber Soul. So this is kind of connecting the dots between that history of top 10 albums of all time.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And I was thinking too about how last year we did Deja Vu Right. Yeah. by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And again, I guess we've had one every year so far of just these big iconic albums that just felt like, what can we bring to the table that hasn't already been said? And perhaps this is the biggest one feeling like that. But again, I think the thing that we can hopefully bring to this is a couple of guys that are kind of jumping in. I wouldn't say fresh, but... Approaching it with this amount of intention for the first time is, I hope, interesting for somebody that knows this album a little bit better than we did a month ago.
3: Yeah, I was thinking about that as well. We're on pace for doing one classic, iconic album per year by tackling the Beatles album. And as much as I feel like we should know all of these albums, and it's something we want to include in the podcast, maybe maybe one per year is a, is a good limit to set because it's it's definitely a whole another beast than reviewing our favorite albums from our our childhood and upbringing that that may not have been as popular to the culture as a whole or may have been from bands that were not as well known and and especially it's it's more difficult than tackling a new album or a, a new band or artist that's getting started out because there's not as much information but nonetheless it's something we have to do to complete this project something we want to do as well uh, to be or aspire to be music historians ourselves so we did our best and fortunately for us there's a lot of other extremely intelligent and gifted people who have taken it upon themselves to understand this album and and uh, have provided a lot of resources that helped us get up to speed to the point where we we can do it some justice
0: and share some good information with you all think that's well said and since we do have a lot to cover should we jump right into the history yeah let's do it
3: so we'll start off by introducing the beatles a band that had formed in 1960 and released seven albums in three years quickly reaching their peak in popularity in those three manic years the world had already seen them reinvent themselves several times and the height of beatlemania was in full effect
4: The crowd forward, out of control.
0: But the band had become weary of live performance. In addition, an anonymous message while touring in Germany in June of 1966 that said, Do not go to Tokyo, your life is in danger, was enough for the Fab Four to take seriously. Japan's religious and conservative groups particularly objected, and the band continued their tour with 35,000 police to protect the group, transporting them from hotels to concert venues in armored vehicles.
4: I just said, they are having more influence on kids and things than anything else, including Jesus. But I said it in that way, which is the wrong way. Publication
3: of Lennon's remarks about the Beatles being more popular than Jesus in an interview in March of 1966 led to some controversy for the band across the pond in America's Bible Belt. A public apology helped but their US tour in August of 1966 resulted in significantly
0: reduced ticket sales. And then the Beatles announced they would permanently retire from touring to pursue individual interests. Fans were understandably shocked. Rumors and speculation began to percolate around the world. Could this be the end of the Fab Four? From here each member began to seek their own interests independent of the
3: band. George Harrison traveled to India for six weeks to study sitar under instruction of composer ravi shankar where he would also study hindu philosophy john lennon tried his hand at acting in the film how i won the war and met his future wife yoko ono while attending art showings while ringo Starr spent time with his wife and son and paul mccartney collaborated with producer george martin on a film
0: soundtrack called the family way also while in london without his bandmates Paul finally took LSD for the first time, having long resisted the insistence by the other Beatles to do so. This gave Paul a renewed sense of possibility, which would come to define the band's creative direction going forward. A few months later, in
3: November of 66, on a flight from Kenya back to London, Paul envisioned a single song centered around the idea of an Edwardian military band. This song became the impetus for a concept album called *Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. As legend and story often take on a life of their own in works of this magnitude, it's also rumored that it stemmed from amusing aboard the flight between Paul and Beatles road manager Mel Evans around the S&P of the salt and pepper packets.
0: Whichever way it originally came to be in his mind, In February of 1967, Paul decided that the new album should be a performance by a fictional alter-ego band that would afford them the freedom to experiment and release them from the Beatles' image that they had come to feel trapped in. Interestingly, the concept by Paul was not discussed with the rest of the band to begin the sessions, but took on a life of its own throughout their time in the studio. As far
3: as musical influences, Sgt. Pepper was inspired largely by the Beatles' immersion in blues and Motown. As we discussed in our Pet Sounds episode, the Beach Boys' seminal album was a huge inspiration for the Beatles, and Pet Sounds was inspired by Rubber Soul. Another album, Freak Out, by the band Mothers of Invention, has also been cited as a major influence for Sgt. Pepper, and may have been the impetus for McCartney's concept album idea. Paul envisioned the alter egos of the members of the Beatles as a, a bit of B.B. King, a bit of Stockhausen, a bit of Albert Ayler, a bit of Ravi
0: Shankar, a bit of Pet Sounds, and a bit of The Doors. Sessions for the album began on November 24th of 1966 in Studio 2 at EMI Studios, which would later come to be known as Abbey Road Studios. The band would start at 7 p.m. and work as late as they wanted with the luxury of limitless recording budget and no absolute deadline for completion. The Beatles were focused on interjecting an atmosphere of celebration into the recording sessions. They introduced psychedelic lighting in the studio space, a lava lamp, a red darkroom lamp, and a stroboscope, though they would quickly abandon that last one. The
3: band also dressed up in psychedelic fashions, and drugs were prevalent throughout recording, though LSD itself was only taken once during the recording sessions by John.
0: This was an accident. John Lennon would later say, we didn't really shove the LP full of pot and drugs, but I mean, there was an effect. We were more consciously trying to keep it out. You wouldn't say, I had some acid babies so groovy, but there was a feeling that something had happened between Revolver and Sgt. Pepper. Sgt. Pepper was recorded
3: using a four track tape recorder. Eight track tape recorders were available in the States, but didn't make their way over to the UK and commercial studios until later in the year. Instead, The Beatles used a technique called reduction mixing, which basically means that one to four tracks from the recorder were mixed and dubbed down onto a master four-track machine. In effect, this gave the Abbey Road engineers a virtual multi-track studio.
4: Let me take you down
0: The first two songs recorded were Strawberry Fields Forever, a song that took an unprecedented fifty-five hours to record, and Penny Lane. Neither of these songs would end up on the album itself, but were subsequently released as a double A-side in February of 1967, when George Martin was pressured by EMI for a single. This decision, Martin would always say, was the biggest mistake of my professional life. The double A-side failed to reach number one in the UK. and.
3: British press began to speculate that maybe the Beatles' run of success was coming to a close. They, of course, couldn't have been more wrong. In fact, Paul McCartney has been quoted as saying, music papers started to slag us off because Sergeant Pepper took five months to record, and I remember the great glee seeing in one of the papers how the Beatles have dried up, and I was sitting there rubbing my hands, saying, you just wait.
0: McCartney would write more than half of the material on Sgt. Pepper and assert increasing amounts of control over the recording of his compositions. Paul played his usual bass guitar, though inspired by Pet Sound's bass instrumentation spent countless hours getting it just right. He also played piano, grand piano, and organ in addition to electric guitar on some songs. Though Paul's role in the band took center stage, each member would push
3: themselves throughout the making of this record. Lennon's songs showed a preference for keyboard instrumentation. Ringo would adopt loose calfskin heads on his tom drums to give them a deeper timbre, while Harrison provided Indian instrumentation in the form of sitar, tambura, and swarmandal. George Martin would credit Harrison as the most committed of the Beatles in striving for a new sound. During the recording of Within You, Without You, the studio was transformed with Indian carpets placed on the
0: walls and dimmed lighting, as well as incense burning to evoke the mood. In addition to pushing their individual boundaries, the band used more session musicians, particularly on the classically inspired arrangements. While Lennon, Starr, and Harrison
3: embraced the creative freedom within McCartney's Band Within a Band idea, the concept itself was met with varying degrees of enthusiasm. George specifically said he had little interest in Paul's fictitious group and that after his experiences in India still felt that his heart was still out there and he was losing interest in being fab at that point. John would later say that his song contributions had nothing to do with the Sgt. Pepper concept, declaring in a 1980 interview that Sgt. Pepper's is called the first concept album
0: but it doesn't go anywhere. It works because we said it worked. The album was completed on April 21st of 1967. The Beatles took an acetate disc of the finished album to Cass Elliot's house, of the Mamas and the Papas, and there, at 6 a.m. in the morning, they played at full volume with the speakers set to open windows. Residents of the neighborhood subsequently opened their own windows and listened, as they understood this to be the yet-released Beatles album. After its release,
3: Sgt. Pepper was widely culturally perceived by listeners as the soundtrack to The Summer of Love, there was a pervasive search for higher consciousness and an alternative worldview. Rolling Stone magazine's Langdon Winner said, The closest Western civilization has come to unity since the Congress of Vienna in 1815 was the week Sergeant Pepper was released. For a brief while, the irreparable, fragmented consciousness of the West was unified, at least in the minds of
0: the young. In his book, Electric Shock, author Peter Dogged describes Sgt. Pepper as the biggest pop happening to take place between the Beatles debut on American TV in 1964 and Lennon's murder in 1980. And it was
3: immediately everywhere. American radio stations interrupted their regular scheduling to play the album virtually nonstop, often from start to finish. None of the songs
0: were released as singles, emphasizing its identity as a self-contained work. In the wake of its release, Sgt. Pepper was celebrated by the counterculture movement of the times. Timothy Leary labeled the Beatles as avatars of the New World Order. McCartney's LSD admission formalized the link between rock music and drug use. Even the very idea of the Beatles redefining themselves as a fictitious band resonated at the time with the young people in the US and the UK who were seeking to redefine themselves and were drawn to communities that embraced the transformational power of mind-altering drugs.
3: British writer Colin Larkin in his Encyclopedia of Popular Music wrote that, It turned out to be no mere pop album, but a cultural icon, embracing the constituent elements of the 60s youth culture. Pop, art, garish fashion, drugs, instant mysticism, and freedom from
0: parental control. The album topped the record retailer album's charts for 23 consecutive weeks from June 10th with a further four weeks at number one in the period through February 1968. It sold 250,000 copies in the UK during its first week on sale there. It held the number one spot on the Billboard Top LPs chart in the US for 15 weeks from July 1st to October 13th, 1967 and remained in the top 200 for 113 consecutive weeks. It's 2.5 million copies Sold within three months of
3: release, exceeded that of all prior Beatles albums. It was the best selling album of the decade in the UK.
0: In addition to sales, the album received widespread critical acclaim. Newsweek's Jack Kroll called Sgt. Pepper a masterpiece and compared its lyrics with the literary works of Edith Sitwell, Harold Pinter, and T.S. Eliot. The New Yorker paired the Beatles with Duke Ellington. As artists who operated in that special territory where entertainment slips into art. Sgt. Pepper has sustained its popularity and credibility into the
3: 21st century. It is the third best-selling studio album in UK history and among the top 20 best-selling albums of all time worldwide, with recent data showing
0: 32 million copies sold. It has topped many best lists over the years, And as recently as 2012 stood alone at number one on Rolling Stone's 500 greatest albums of all time. The editors also said that it was the most important rock and roll album ever made. In NME's 2014 article, 25 albums with the most incredible production, Emily Barker described Sgt. Pepper as kaleidoscopic and an orchestral baroque pop masterpiece, the likes of which has rarely been matched since. And finally,
3: In 2022, two wannabe music historians in their 30s are in the midst of recording an in-depth podcast on the album. Recognizing this as an arduous task, the words of John Lennon have been echoing in our minds throughout the exploration of this album. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing you can know that isn't known. Nothing you can see that isn't shown. So we're just hoping we learned a little something about how to play the game, but we're here to tell you listeners, it was not easy.
0: It's May 26th of 2022. So we can accurately state that it was 55 years ago today. The Beatles win in another style and it was guaranteed to raise a smile. So let me introduce to you the biggest album in all these years, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band.
5: Trevor and Shane, this is Brian Colburn from the Playlist Wars podcast, and I appreciate you inviting me to talk about my favorite song from the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. While this album is an absolute classic, being a rock leaning guy personally, I gravitate to the title track that opens the album and introduces the world to this fictitious band that the Beatles are portraying. The fact that this band never performed this song live as the Beatles personally to me is a travesty, although members have worked it into their individual shows over the years. This is one of the Beatles' most rocking tracks, in my humble opinion, and would easily make a top 10 Beatles playlist if I were creating one for an episode of Playlist Wars. Once again, thank you, Trevor and Shane, for inviting me onto your show. And if the listeners would like to learn more about Playlist Wars, you can find us wherever you listen to album divers, such as Apple Podcasts or Spotify. However, the best place to learn more about our show and exactly what we do is to visit us anytime at PlaylistWarsPodcast.com. Thanks again, guys, and have a great one.
0: All right, so right out of the gate here, before we get into talking about the track-by-track itself, if I sound a little sexier than I normally do, which (laughs) I know is quite a thing to say in and of itself. It's because uh, I got coronavirus between the time that we finished the history and started the track by track. I know you all thought that we did this seamlessly and perfectly in one take, but anyway, yeah, if I sound uh, a little sexier, that's why. (laughs) It might add to the allure of the episode. Yeah, we'll we'll see how that goes. See how much voice I've got left <laughs> by the end of this. All right, so that
3: was a sample of track one that leads into this album here and introduces the Beatles' alter egos or stage names, fictitious characters, if you will, that will be participating in this album that is conceptually thrown out there as a concert. So you hear the the crowd getting ready you hear the band introducing themselves and it
0: really has that live performance feel to it from the get-go definitely yeah I love that you can hear the sound of the crowd especially that first 10 seconds and that pit orchestra kind of warming up in the background that really gives it that live feeling and you've got Paul acting as sort of a MC for the night and introducing this band. Then John Lennon is this fictitious lead singer who starts singing this appreciation for the fans and saying it's wonderful to be here. You're such a lovely audience. And I thought it was kind of interesting because um, here the Beatles are just deciding that they're done playing live, that they're stopping their live touring. We're gonna become a studio band now. And then the very first thing that they create after that, that makes it onto an album anyway, Is this song that is like a live performance Um, and I thought there was some sort of interesting art imitating life aspect to that.
3: Yeah, definitely except they're reinventing themselves as this new band so so in a way they're saying we're not touring anymore as the Beatles but here we are as Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band and then maybe there's that little live performance to, to make it a little a little interesting. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band never said that they wouldn't do exactly, live right. anymore. Yeah. yeah, so <laughs> I think that that's kind of the creative move that they, they did there. There's a, a quote from Paul McCartney that I want to share because I think it sums up the beginning of this album really well, and it gives reference to one of my dad's all-time favorite bands, so I had to include it. Uh, Paul says, I, I thought it would be nice to lose our identities to submerge ourselves in the persona of a fake group. We would make up all the culture around it and collect all our heroes in one place. So I thought a typical stupid-sounding name for a Dr. Hook's medicine show and traveling circus kind of thing would be
0: Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club. That's awesome. I like that backstory to this. And this is a good time, I think, to mention that this really was Paul's creation and idea as far as this concept We'll see as we get into the rest of the tracks that not all of them carry through that same theme, but I love that Paul was envisioning that from the get-go and that it starts the album off. So by the end of
3: track one, he introduces a singer of the band, and that character is Billy Shears. That's right. Billy Shears, played by Ringo Starr. So that takes us to track two. This one is titled, With a Little Help From My Friends.
4: What would you think if I sang at it tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Let me your ears and I'll sing you a song And I'll try not to sing at a key
6: Hi, my name is Norm. When I was young and in college and first heard the lyrics to the song with a little help from my friends, they really spoke to me. I know there are some people that say friends in the song is in reference to drugs and how they might help a person out. That's possible. But what I really got out of the words was, during that time in my life, I needed true friends. People that could help me kind of navigate the young individual I was becoming. Help me grow as a person, and be there for me no matter what. Two of those such great friends is Terry and Karen, and they are still in my life some 50 years later. They are like my chosen family and have been there with me since college. A buddy of mine from more recent years is Kurt. He and I taught school together for over 25 years. He's becoming like a brother to me. To this day, I get by with a little help from all three of these great friends. These people are the ones I can count on to listen whenever I need it, give me advice, and never judge
0: my opinion. So this is one of the few songs that was sung by Ringo Starr, and I think this is my favorite Ringo Starr song. The song was originally called Bad Finger Boogie and I love how this song, the cheering in the background is such a seamless transition from that first song into the next to point where you don't even really know where the first ends and the second one begins. Yeah, it's really smooth. This song was written by Paul and John. John is actually taking Ringo's place in this song playing drums and then you have the fifth Beatle, producer George Martin on the organ on this song. And while we're talking about George Martin. I wanted to mention in the first song, of course we hear it into the next one too, the production on this album is so unique. One of the things, of course, that makes Sgt. Pepper stand out as such a unique album, especially for The Times, is similar to what we talked about with Phil Spector's influence on pet sounds, but that idea of playing the studio. I was texting you when we first decided to do this album, that I was listening to this on headphones and hearing... You know, just just John in, is in my left channel, or I've got just the guitar here in my right channel. Really, really heavy channel separation throughout this, and George Martin is, of course, at the helm of all those decisions. And a lot of that are things that aren't done to that extent anymore. In fact, I was talking with some Beatles fans about it, and oddly enough, a lot of them were saying, yeah, it was kind of strange, actually, I don't really miss it, they were saying. But when you've got on headphones, it is not real natural. I found it to be kind of entertaining. I enjoyed it. And I thought diehard Beatle fans were going to defend it at all costs because this is such a phenomenal album. But at least in my experience, a lot of the ones that chimed in said, yeah, he was messing around and a lot of that didn't make sense. Yeah,
3: I kind of like that element of the production. It sort of adds to the age of the album you know being something that you don't hear quite often today it's uh something that that makes it a little bit more unique and and puts it back in the 60s when they were experimenting with channeling and different sounds and i thought it was cool they added the the screaming fans as well did you know that was recorded at a beatles concert at the hollywood bowl (laughs) That's right. I forgot about that. So the lyrics of the, the song or the, the general message here is centered around a, a series of questions asking, what would you do if I sang out a tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me to be the first one? And then a number of others that follow. And the, the common unifying answer is that idea of inclusivity that everyone can can join in on the song and that everybody will get by with, a little help from each other with a little help from my friends. I've always really enjoyed this song. I think I've known it since I was a pretty young child. And I want to say that uh, even recently that uh, may have been my dad's ringtone uh, for one of his best friends every time he would call him. I'm pretty sure that's the song that would pop up. So I've heard it a lot over the years. Oh, that's cool. And it's definitely one that I think is placed well to open up the
0: the album that line that you read would you stand up and walk out on me did you read that that was originally going to be would you throw tomatoes at me Ringo
3: refused to sing that line because people would throw jelly beans and jelly bellies on stage and there was some other item that they said they would throw up there that uh, was not tomatoes but it it was some other food item and Ringo had bad memories of that and had told himself if he ever toured again, that that's what his biggest fear would be, that people would throw stuff at them.
0: Yeah, I, I at first I read that and I was like, I don't know if people are going to actually throw tomatoes just because you say that. But I read that same thing. It was actually George Harrison that had made a comment that he liked jelly bellies in the early days of the Beatles. So fans decided they'd throw jelly beans at the stage when they were performing. Oh, so they did it as a a nice gesture. Yeah. I thought they were
3: hungry (laughs) or needed needed a little pick-me-up sugar.
0: You like jelly beans? I'll throw some jelly beans at Hmm. you for sure. I
3: thought they just happened to throw whatever they had
0: convenient or something and figured people just ate a lot of jelly beans back then or something. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was George Harrison's comment. And I think Ringo's probably right. I I think they probably would have been throwing tomatoes if he sang a line that said that. It reminds me of... um, there was a Foo Fighters music video that had like a Mentos, like a fake Mentos commercial mm-hmm. for their first album. And they had to quit playing that song, the Foo Fighters, because fans would just throw Mentos on the stage Oh wow. over and over again. So <laughs> I think uh, they people do have to be careful. Wow. Fans do have to be careful about that.
3: Looking back at my uh, notes here from the, the first track, I forgot to mention... The line that I wanted to comment on uh, was when they said they've been going in and out of style, but they're guaranteed to raise a smile. You know, obviously talking about the fictitious band Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, but we know that's just a stage name for the Beatles. And so for them to start this album by saying they've been going in and out of style, they mention that right away in track one here. And then it transitions into with a little help from my friends, which again has that same conceptual idea behind it of of the Beatles being a popular successful band but also being challenged by some people and, and having some struggles and
0: needing the help from their friends to get by yeah I think that's a good connection there there's that line that Ringo says in the song that says and I'll try not to sing out of key me
4: your ears and I'll sing you a song and I'll try not to sing
0: Most of the Beatles' albums had at least one Ringo star song, and I read that Ringo would always apologize in advance for any wavering vocals. So in a way, that was kind of a very Ringo line. I know these words were written by John and Paul, but maybe they stuck that in there thinking, this is a good line for Ringo to sing, since he's going to probably say that anyway. I read that he
3: recorded this song with all of them surrounding him as well. Did you you see that? I did, yeah. Yeah. Just to give it that that feeling of togetherness and, and I got my people right here. That's and maybe right. to encourage him since he doesn't take lead vocals
0: very often. Yeah, in fact, the story behind that was the song was recorded after a photo shoot for the album cover. So this was recorded a little bit later. And of course, that album cover is very elaborate. I don't even know if we're going to get time to talk about the album cover at some point here. But Star planned to head home. But the other Beatles convinced him to pull this all-nighter with them and sing his part. And this was literally Ringo getting help from the other members of the band to get through this song. In fact, they were all standing around him basically propping him up for moral support because he was so exhausted at that point. Oh, wow. There's a lot of references as we go to drugs or perceived drug references throughout this album I get high with a little help from my friends whether or not that's a drug reference is left to anybody's interpretation and perhaps that's the way the Beatles wanted some of these things to be I know we're gonna go into a little bit more detail in some upcoming songs about that but just dropping a few of these marking the times and um, this really was as we mentioned in the history a time where psychedelic drug use and music were coming together, that we're starting to merge these two things. I think I read a quote from Paul that he did drop that line in there about
3: getting high with a little help from my friends to keep up with the times and to make uh, to make reference okay. to the marijuana revolution of the 60s with the hippies. And so
0: I'm pretty sure
3: that's a drug reference.
0: Yeah, I think you might be right. My favorite line in the song, After Reading All the History is what do you see when you turn out the light I can't tell you but I know it's mine obviously this line implies much deeper meaning and I liked it even before I read this but I guess John and Paul did giggle a little bit about that thinking that it had sort of a euf- euphemistic suggestion of uh maybe them looking at their willies <laughs> underneath the sheets I read that too <laughs>
3: I would have never picked up on that listening to the no. song. But doing some history you read that. Well, and yeah. this album in particular, I mean, there's been so many people who have tried to read between the lines and, and dissect everything and make connections to historical events along along the the timeline, whether it's it was twenty years ago today in in, in the opening track, which is just probably a random number thrown in there or something that sounded cool but some people have connected that to a bunch of things that happened exactly 20 years before, you know, this album was released which is probably nothing and uh, there's other events that people have tied to the songs and there's enough interpretation out there that the the Beatles members have seen themselves and then you can read their quotes or responses to that saying, "No, it wasn't about that" or "No, I didn't exactly mean this." So there's so much back and forth on an album like this that has so much attention to it
0: over the course of what about 60 years or so now, right? So, yeah, it must have been weird to be the Beatles that everything's going to be analyzed with so much scrutiny, and some of it in retrospect is sort of ridiculous. The other thing that I don't know if we're going to get into talking too much about, but there was this whole Paul is dead thing that was going on (laughs) during that time and back to the album cover like (laughs) people looking at all of these different images and oh that must mean that makes me
3: think of that that Chris Farley SNL skit when he's interviewing (laughs) and he's like you know that thing about like where you listen to it backwards and it says like Paul is dead. You weren't really dead, were you? That was a hoax, right?
0: <laughs> that was a hoax, right? Yeah. And Paul's, Paul's like, like, no, Chris,
3: uh, I'm still yes, alive. I you know, am right here.
0: I wasn't really dead.
7: <laughs> hey, you remember when you were with the Beatles and you were supposed
8: to be dead? And, uh, there's all these clues that like, uh, would play some song backwards and it'd say that like, Paul is dead. And, uh, Everyone thought that you were dead or something? Yep. <laughs> uh, that was um, a hoax,
4: right? <laughs> yeah,
9: I, I wasn't really dead. <laughs> right. Uh.
0: And of course, Chris beats oh, himself up. Yeah, it's yeah, like, gosh, i an idiot. Not, pulls out his hair. I'll never not laugh at That's that. That's so funny. It just cracks me up. Yeah, that guy
3: was, that guy oh, was a, man. a treasure, man. So getting back to the song here a little bit, it, it had a lot of success, and it, it reached number one on the UK charts three separate times by three other artists after the Beatles. Joe Cocker. Maybe the most popular and familiar version of it because yeah. it, it showed up on the iconic uh, 1988 TV show, The Wonder Years. Yep. Um, did a, a version of it in 1968. That hit number one. Another band, Wet, 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 uh, did, did it in 1988. And Sam and Mark, again in 2004. And, and every time that song hit number one again. So... I mean, obviously, that probably speaks to these artists for doing a good uh, remix of the original song, but it it also goes to show how much it speaks to the audience, especially in the UK, how how big this song is, how big the Beatles were over there for for these lyrics to, you know, you could say maybe be sung by almost anybody, and it's going to come across as a hit.
0: Well, they're very relatable lyrics. I'm glad you brought that up. I love that Joe Cocker version, in fact, it may be blasphemous, I think I might like that better than this version, just I like the instrumentation to it, and I guess for me, it's all contextual, right? I was born in 1984, and I remember watching The Wonder Years, you said that came out in 1988, so I was watching that, likely on rerun, I guess, when I was a little bit older, but I love that. I love that show. And I heard that song so many times. That's probably the first time I heard this song. But whoever's singing it, you're right. The The words, the song and just the, the sentiment of it. This is just a great song.
3: Yeah, I really like Joe's version, too. His voice is, is super soothing. Uh, it's, a, it's a fun one. And then with the with the choir and the the, the twist on the lyrics that they do with the chorus there is, is pretty fun as well. I don't think I've heard the other two bands' versions. Have you? I may not have. We'll have yeah, to check them out.
0: Well, as we transition away from the song, we were talking earlier about drug references being written into these songs, whether on purpose or on accident. We'll have to talk about whether or not this next one is that way. But let's talk about track three. This is Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Hello, my name is Vincent Pompey
3: and I'm choosing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and I don't know too much about, you know, what the song's about. All kinds of rumors as in uh, oh, John Lennon saw his son draw some picture or something. I don't whatever it's about it doesn't matter. The reason I like it is I remember being in middle school and 8th grade dance and headbanging to this song and during the part of the chorus that goes, you know, it goes da 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 we would all chant, LSD. It was Teen Inks at its very best, and I guess I have the Beatles to thank for that.
4: Man, this
3: this might be the most well-known track on the album, at least uh, to the general public. Maybe not as highly regarded as some of the others to music scholars and critics but this is a song that almost everybody knows and can at least sing along to the chorus they've heard it before i really like the the trippy sounds to begin the song i think it kind of sets the stage that you're about to go on a trip no pun intended there's going to be something imaginary or dreamlike in a sense with with the lyrics that are to follow and, and the story that's about to be told i also like how everyone joins in on that word kaleidoscope that's really cool and then it transitions mm. into this this uh, more of a high like state it's almost like it doesn't become airy but there's some uh, weight that's lifted it sounds more light uh, when they get to the part in the next line where they're, they're saying uh, cellophane flowers of yellow and green yeah. you know that part like just really sets the stage and then of course it's the kind of floating right, right. It's like yeah. The floating. yeah floating yeah. is a good way to describe it and you're like kind of drifting off it almost makes you want to close your eyes and just kind of imagine yeah. this backdrop that the words are painting and then those iconic three drum beats right before oh, they yeah. break out into the, the chorus 100%.
0: man that's yeah that's
10: awesome
0: you're reading my mind on that yeah there's there's something i mean there's it's so simple and Ringo gets a bunch of crap for being a really simple drummer in a lot of ways. I mean, as, as well regarded as all the Beatles are, sometimes Ringo gets thrown under the bus for whatever reason for being the, the least talented Beatle or something like that. But I've read other music historians talking about how no Ringo is perfect for this band. Um, it's simple, but it's exactly what he needed to be. And that's a perfect example of his style, just those three drum hits are perfect. It suits that song exactly because it breaks you out of that floaty trance that you were d- describing. Right. And the whole song
3: kind of does that where you're back and forth between some trippy verse, you're back into this dream state and the story continues. And then all of a sudden that, dun, 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 and then it goes back to the chorus. So there's always sort of that reprieve where everybody's just singing along and then they take you back into this relaxed flowy state It's really well done overall. Uh, Music, the story, uh, the whole nine yards, I, I think this is a pretty
0: complete song. Yeah, and you said it really well how the words and the music go together in this song. The words were inspired by a hallucinatory chapter of Lewis Carroll of Alice in Wonderland fame, novel in 1871 that is called Through the Looking Glass. And particularly, there was a chapter called "Which Dreamed It, in which Alice floats on a boat beneath sunny skies. And as the story goes, it's also
3: based on a a pastel drawing by four-year-old son Julian of his classmate uh, Lucy O'Donnell uh, that he himself had written at the top, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. But I definitely do not buy that story. I'm pretty sure it's about LSD. And they just made that up after the fact because you know, they wanted to save face when people
0: started giving them a hard time for having all these drug
3: references in their album.
0: I now... I've, I've gone the other way on that because before I knew the story about Julian's drawing, I assumed it had to have been about LSD. And then somebody told me that story much before we were doing the research for this. And I said the same thing as you. I was like, okay, well, maybe that actually... Did happen, but he saw the drawing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and he was like hey LSD and he was inspired that way but in reading and researching for this album they're pretty open about which songs are about drugs and which ones aren't and the fact that they were so adamant that this was not about LSD and that he didn't see that connection until the song was written makes me actually believe this Ringo was actually a witness to the moment that Julian was the one that first uttered the song title
3: Well, I would say at the very least, it's about Julian's drawing. And it's also about drugs. But it's definitely not only about this four-year-old kid's drawing of his school friend, Lucy. Because if that were the case, they would write a fun, playful song from the perspective of a four-year-old. But they laced this song with so many drug references and made the music super trippy, very psychedelic. And it really played on this idea of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. I mean, they, they painted Julian's four-year-old uh, classmate as, you know, some high-as-a-kite, trippy hippie that had kaleidoscope eyes and that they were getting so mesmerized by, you know, like, it's very adult uh, in nature with the lyrics.
0: I I totally see where you're coming from, and I don't have any other explanation, but again, the thing that just makes me think maybe... It's just a weird coincidence is that they were just so open about every other time that they were referencing drugs. I don't know. And in this one, they are so insistent that Not they were. Sure. I so. feel like it's one of those yeah.
3: instances where somebody called them out on it, they denied it, and they they held to that long enough that they said, well, that's our story at this point. If we go back on it, then we're liars, and they're never going to believe us on other things, so we're just going to have to say that it was about Julian. Or, or maybe they didn't want to ignore the fact that they did get the inspiration from him. Or maybe they wanted to disconnect the the drugs from, you know, the four-year-old. You know, they didn't want to say, well, this came from a, a four-year-old's innocent drawing of his classmate. And then it inspired us to write a song about our experiences on psychedelics. But, I mean, there's so many Could references. Be. The flowers that grow so incredibly high. And he just, like, oh. trails on that word. Uh, head in the clouds and you're gone. I mean, that's another drug reference, obviously. You know, there's so much in there that's...
0: Oh, uh, I, 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 I get it. I know what you're definitely
3: saying. Definitely double meaning, if at all, at the very least. I mean, but I don't know. There's no picture of this this uh, drawing of, of Julian's. There's, there's nothing that uh, gives strong credibility uh, to that except for the story. So I guess you just have to believe what
0: they're saying. Actually, the drawing still exists. What? I never saw and it. And it, it's owned by David Gilmore of Pink Floyd. No way. Can you see it online? Yeah. Wow. And in four-year-old scribbled writing at the top, it says Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. I don't know. I don't know what it looks like, but I know right. that um, David Gilmore owns the drawing now. Wow.
10: I
3: mean, I guess that is something a four-year-old might title it, like if they were prompted by a teacher to say, you need to have a subject and... Say what they're doing, and then something cool about them. Oh, it's Lucy, my friend Lucy. She's in the sky, and she has a diamond necklace. So,
0: I'll call it that. I'm gonna see if I can find it real quick. It's trippy. Oh yeah, you found it. It it looks it looks like actual art. Maybe
3: Julian was on LSD. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> maybe so.
3: Maybe they were guy. passing
0: around the class. Interesting. Yeah, it's really faded, but hmm. that's, that's cool. Yeah, awesome.
4: In a boat on a river With tangerine trees And marmalade skies
10: well,
3: You mentioned the, the, the imagery That the music creates I really like that line Picture yourself in a boat on the river With tangerine trees And marmalade skies That picture yourself in a boat on the river Comes from uh, Alice in Wonderland there's another reference to that movie in this song too. I can't remember which one, but then that, that line, in completion, and I think maybe the line before it and the one after, has been depicted in a a, a painting um, by a famous artist as well. Did you happen to see that? No. Oh, that's that's really cool. I think I came upon that um, on the Genius website reading about the lyrics. They had a they had a photo of that uh, a drawing. It basically just showed somebody in a boat going down the river with the sky kind of trippy orange and the tangerine trees. Yeah. Something else uh, interesting about that line, you can take tangerines and mash them up and make a marmalade. Uh huh. Either, you know, in their head and their imagination, they're taking these tangerines off the tree and they're turning it into jam and then painting it across the sky and just getting lost in this wild, Colorful place. I mean, that parallels a lot with the movie Alice in Wonderland uh, as well, which also has a lot of drug references, by the way. Yeah. So more evidence that this song is probably about
0: LSD. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we'll never know for sure. It'll always be up for debate. Did you read that one of the missing links they call Lucy when we're talking about like archaeological history.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I
0: read that story. That was cool. Yeah. Yeah. There was a 1974 fossil that was 3.2 million years old of Australopithecus. I'm not going to be able to say the next part of that. Yeah.
3: Isn't it the oldest uh, ancestor to humans ever found? I think
0: so. I think so. And the reason they named it is because all of the archaeologists were listening to this album so much. Getting high on LSD and, the, and like, oh yeah, while they were
3: celebrating <laughs> their discovery. And so they decided to call it Lucy in honor of this song. Or in honor of Julian's four year old classmate.
0: Later they weren't really sure if they hallucinated the whole thing on this yeah, right. Yeah. But yes, that that is why I I mean I always knew that. That ancestor, that ancestor to humans was called Lucy, and I never knew why. Yeah, I didn't realize either. that was a Beatles reference yeah, until cool. we started doing the history here. Mm-hmm. A couple other little interesting tidbits on this one musically they sped everything up on this to kind of make it sound a little bit trippier and just giving it that psychedelic sound. And it's only Paul's bass and George's lead guitar that are at normal speed, so even John Lennon's vocals are sped up a little bit, just to sound a little bit different. And Lennon didn't really like his vocals. He wished he had a little bit more time to devote to it, but that's kind of John Lennon. As I'm learning from doing this, he, he was always pretty self-critical mm-hmm. and I think he kind of never really loved the sound of his own voice. So some of the studio experimentation, I think was to fit the album and some of it for him was just to find a sound that he liked for his voice. But I really like it. I think it adds something to the sound, of course, and the sound, the feel of this song. Oh, yeah, it's definitely fitting.
3: There's another verse I, I wanted to highlight. I always I always laugh at this one. Follow her down to a bridge by a fountain where rocking horse people eat marshmallow pies. <laughs> I just picture these people, like, rocking back and forth on the horse, not going anywhere, not doing anything, just stuffing their face with marshmallow pies. <laughs>
0: We mentioned in the the history that I had never really listened to this album from start to finish, but I knew all these songs really well. This is one of the ones I felt like I knew the best. I remember I had a compilation CD, and I would have been in 6th or 7th grade when I got really into this compilation album. In fact, I got into it so much, I was sharing this with friends. I was doing that typical put a blank tape into a CD player and hit record, and record the cd and given that out to friends at school that were going hey i want i want that beatles album bring give that to me and i got several friends into the beatles because of this compilation album that i was giving them cassettes of and we had a uh, wax museum assignment in school meaning that we had to like dress up as a character or a person a famous person and then parents would come in and like push a button on our shirt and we would do this monologue like we come to life and talk about who these historical uh, figures we we were portraying. And me and three other buddies were the Beatles during this time. And I just remember this is one of the songs that uh, I got really interested in. It was just so interesting and trippy to me to hear these words. I'll have to share that picture with you. I actually found it the other day.
3: Oh, I wanted to ask you too. Did you have a kaleidoscope as a kid?
0: Uh, I think I had like a little cheap one, like like party favor one. Not a really cool one.
3: I was always fascinated by them as as kids. I, I don't know if I still have any at home or if I've lost them over the years. But I, I know my my dad really liked them as well. Being an art teacher, you should get one for Will. That would be a, a cool thing for him to I discover. Think he'd probably like, like that. Yeah. How to that's how a to look idea. in there and and turn it and and figure out that he can control the image.
0: It I mean, might be, be a little trippy. too too hard for him to figure out like closing one eye and looking in but it won't be long before you right, will yeah. be something it'll, it'll like takes that takes some time to, to do that Lucy
10: in the Sky with Diamonds
1: My name is Brian Wiseman I'm a friend of Shane's and Lucy in the
0: Sky with Diamonds is my favorite track on the album it has childlike
7: appeal it's a very fun song it has a very creative
0: musical arrangement but i think the thing that i enjoy most about
1: this song is how john takes us on a journey through his mind he is painting us a song and we are
0: really blessed to have his artistry
3: we should move on to the next track yeah let's move on to track four this one is titled getting better
4: All the time. Better,
5: better. My name is Gary, and one of my absolute favorite songs on the Sgt. Pepper's album is Getting Better. I'd love to have a sophisticated take about the staccato of the strings and the percussion and how that countered against the bass or something about the lyrics, but honestly, I just love that it's a simple pop ditty. The refrain of getting better and just the simple rhythm of the music just puts me in a good mood. And a lot of times when I'm listening to music, that's just what I want. And the Beatles just took it to the highest possible level.
10: I like how the music
3: transitions here to more of a funky rock uh, feel with the guitar. And the pace of the song ha- has this, this forward pushing positive uh, energy to it. You know, it's almost like
0: the music is, is telling you it's getting better alongside the lyrics. Yeah, and that's definitely the message with this one. And Paul is the one that mainly wrote these lyrics. But John came in and added his own little touches. And I love John's little background vocals to this and what he adds to it because it's almost like he's kind of trolling Paul on this song because Paul's doing the, got to admit it, it's getting better, it's getting better all the time. And then you can hear John in the background going, it can't get no worse, which is the same way as saying it's getting better, but it's sort of a... Glass half empty kind of way of saying the exact same thing, and I feel like John knew what he was doing, just sort of sort of trolling Paul's song here. And I thought that fit their personalities so well. Yeah,
3: definitely, and it 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 adds an extra element to the the message because saying something is getting better doesn't really tell you your starting point, but but saying it Can't Get Much Worse implies that things are pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so there is a little extra that's added by that, but it is kind of fun to hear them. Kind of call and response. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. that is kind of cool how they go back and forth on that. Some deep lyrics in this one, though, some uh, confessions.
4: I used to be cruel to my woman. I beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved.
0: Yeah, another one where I feel like Paul wrote the skeleton of this and said, hey, why don't you throw a, a verse in there mm-hmm. for you? And then John comes back with, uh, I used to be cruel to my woman. I I beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved, which, of course, as as most Beatles historians are going to know, that's there's some truth to this. This is where... John did have some physical issues, some violence uh, against some of the women that he was with throughout the years. And this was interesting because he picks this upbeat song to make this confessional statement. I had mentioned to you that Rubber Soul is potentially my favorite Beatles album, and that has the song Run For Your Life on it, which is now a very controversial song looking back, but lyrics about if this woman were to cheat on him, she better watch out, watch her back. And this one, it's almost more like he's being apologetic for it. But even that, I think, in today's world, would have been looked on poorly. To even say I'm I'm changing my scene, I'm doing the best that I can. People today would be like, Yeah, but what was that thing you said before about you used to beat your woman? You now even mm-hmm. that wouldn't fly. So in a way, in the time, this might be looked at as a redemption story for John, based on what he's gone through and, and some of the lyrics that maybe he's written in the past but I think it's even controversial still at this point when we look at it through the lens of 2022
3: yeah I read something about him saying that he he was always kind of a violent angry person that he would he would get in fights he would get in fights with men and he would he would hit women but he, he says it was uh, through his teen years and maybe early adulthood but that th- there was something else I read about how uh, he said sometimes it's the people with the most violence and, and aggression built up in them that are such advocates for, for peace and love and that, that having that past and that history is what uh, fostered his uh, growth and wanting to, to love and, and to care for and, and uh, you know, to create peace in the world. So
0: Yeah, in fact, I've got that quote right here. It was from his 1980 interview in Playboy, which, of course, is the year he died. But he said, I couldn't express myself and I hit That's why I'm always about peace, you see. It is the most violent people who go for love and peace. Mm -hmm. Everything's the opposite. But I sincerely believe in love and peace. I'm a violent man who has learned not to be violent and regrets his violence. I will have to be a lot older before I can face in public how I treated women as a youngster.
3: I think it takes a lot to openly admit that. It's also a story with a good ending that he's come around and didn't uh let those demons continue to control him for
0: for his entire life I hope that's the case I, I hope that uh he got some of this in check prior to that and um you know clearly it's weighing heavy on his heart. he's written it in, into a song and and uh expressed it in an interview you know up until the year he died so mm-hmm. yeah it was at least something that he was uh, he was ashamed of for sure
3: what, one thing in this song that Paul and John could share and sing about together was the fact that they both used to get in trouble in school and and weren't the best of students. Did you read about that? No. Tell me about that. I saw a report card. It looked like it was it was from grade school, maybe junior high, where it had outlined all of John Lennon's detentions, and maybe maybe there was Paul <laughs> on there as well, but what I was reading they, they kind of painted the picture that neither one of them was really the the cliche um, follow the rules kind of kid do well make the grade say what the teacher wants you to say etc uh, so there's that verse 2 where Paul says me used to be angry young man um, that's poking fun at the fact that they didn't really pay attention in school and didn't really take it that seriously so they're throwing that poor grammar in there Uh, and then me hiding me head in the sand is is kind of a way of uh, connecting on that idea of neither one of them really liking school or being kind of
0: rebellious <laughs> well you know they they made themselves into all right right gentlemen yeah. As yeah. <laughs> history was okay to them yeah I used to get. Mad- We had mentioned in the history that, despite drug references abounding in this album, that LSD itself was only taken once during the making of this album, and that was an accident. Yeah, that's right. It was and an accident. It was during this song that that happened. Did you hear how that happened or, or why? I don't understand how you accidentally yeah yeah take so drugs. so. John would carry around a pillbox with uppers to keep him alert in the studio. So, Oh, I guess that makes sense if it just got mixed up. I mean, other drugs, sure. you know. Yeah. Um, but he had his other pillbox that had a large dose of LSD in it, and he just got them mixed up, and he took the wrong one. Uh-huh. So Paul had to lead him to the roof to get him fresh air during the recording, which I'm thinking LSD and roof, aren't. isn't that like <laughs> the opposite of where you want to go? But um, when John couldn't continue, they just drove him to Paul's home, which was the closest one to EMI Studios. And as he got there, Paul decided he was going to keep John company by taking acid himself. So this is the only time that Paul and John took LSD together. And it was because John did it on accident. And I would agree, taking somebody onto the roof is not a good idea but i guess if that's the only place <laughs> to get some fresh air get some fresh air yeah i guess that's what you have to do i've been to ema studios before it's not that tall of a roof so oh wow very cool all yeah, right when did you go there yeah uh it would have been just the year before the pandemic i think i think i went in 2019 got to walk across abbey road i remember you showing me
3: some photos from that yeah oh, cool
0: yeah that was it was important to me to, to get there. It was it was pretty cool. Yeah, pretty that's cool definitely a bucket list item. Yeah, for sure. Last thing I wanted to mention on this one is back to George Martin being such a and we we didn't talk about it, but everybody we've alluded to it. Everybody talks about George Martin being the fifth Beatle just because of his skills within the studio. But he was also a musician himself and he's playing pianette, which is a smaller version of a piano and, and piano striking the strings of the piano with his hands as opposed to hitting the keys a la brian wilson on pet sound so a little nod to that and we talked about the influence that that album had on this one george martin is doing that exact same thing on the piano for this song all right well that
3: brings us to track number five this one is titled fixing a hole
4: i'm fixing a hole
9: Uh, Hi, it's Pete from Wake the Watchmen, a little one-man band from Australia. Um, I just wanted to quickly say a few words about Fixing a Hole. You know, Sgt Pepper's is definitely one of the first albums I think I ever heard. I remember Dad had Abbey Road and Sgt Pepper on CD, and he had a... A freshly bought CD player That we used to listen to it a lot And obviously look at the artwork And stuff like that Um, But the song itself um, You know For me it's a very visual kind of song And I think a lot of that Obviously has to do with the artwork of the album Uh, As I'm listening to the song I kind of see them in their outfits And I kind of imagine them Playing in the outfits and stuff like that So it's a very colourful kind of sound And another thing I think I've done uh, When listening to it Is I kind of I clumped the two songs Getting Better and Fixing a Hole, which is obviously track four and track five together in my head. I think they might have similar rhythms or something like that. And it's almost like a treat in the middle of the album to have two songs next to each other that are so high quality. I mean, the whole album obviously is, but uh, there's something uh, uplifting and joyous and amazing about it. it
4: really doesn't matter if I'm-
0: Of all the songs on this album, this might be the one that I was the least familiar with. Again, I had heard all these songs, and this one is no exception, but this is one that I really hadn't given a lot of time before going back and really dissecting this album. And I have to say, this was a grower for me. This ended up being one of my favorite songs on the album. This is a McCartney song, and it's all about introspection, meditation, self-discovery, And I just really liked the wordplay. Things like, it really doesn't matter if I'm wrong, I'm right where I belong, I'm right where I belong. You know, just kind of the one word, beginning of one phrase is the start of the next one. I was appreciating those words and just the, it was unique to me.
4: it really doesn't matter if I'm wrong.
3: Yeah, I didn't know much about this song either, but I would agree with what what you said. Those are some unique elements. I really liked the background vocals like the doo 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 and the ooze. If you remember that section, that part was mm-hmm. kinda cool. And the bass guitar was a nice touch on this one too. I don't I don't know if we really heard that standing out much in previous tracks.
0: It does stand out a lot on this one,
4: yeah. The kept my mind
0: this song was not recorded at Abbey Road Studios, actually. The studios were booked for whatever reason, and so it was recorded in a nearby studio. I would love to know what band bumped out the Beatles that day to record <laughs> the song. Yeah. I imagine that it would be like... That would be their claim to fame. It was previously established that this day was taken up by somebody else and the beatles were like ah but we really want to record it today or for whatever reason and they decided not to wait mm-hmm. but it makes me think like oh i would love to be that band just be like yeah beatles had to scoot so that we could get done with our song there's a quote from mccartney that i want to
3: share that elaborates on the the meaning of this song gives you some context it was the idea of me being on my own now able to do what i want if if i want, I'll. Paint the room in a colorful way. I was living now pretty much on my own in Cavendish Avenue and enjoying my freedom and my new house and the salonness of it all. It's pretty much my song as I recall. I like the double meaning of if I'm wrong, I'm right where I belong. So it's kind of an ode to gaining personal freedom or not letting people uh, tell you what to do. And you know, that sort of leads to uh, creativity because when you have endless options of what you can do with your time and your thoughts, your space and your mind then that's when your your creative juices start flowing and, and uh, you can put your personal touch on everything um, that you have going in your life whether that be physical or abstract idea of creating all the different pieces of, of your life that you want uh, there's that freedom when you don't have other people telling you what to do
0: Yeah, I, I liked that it shows you that McCartney was in that headspace when he was writing this. We're going to get a lot more of these as we continue, I think, but this is another one that people thought maybe this was a reference to heroin because is fixing a hole, some sort of reference to putting a needle in your arm or something like that. But Paul, of course, has been quick to squelch any of those rumors.
3: But he did, he did say at one point that the song was an ode to pot.
0: That's right. I, I, I had read that the This is the second song that he attributed to Pot, and the first was "Revolvers." Got to Get You Into My Life as another one that he made reference to Mm -hmm. Pot being an influence by.
3: Another quote here that I threw in my notes from Paul, Fixing a Hole was about all those pissy people who told you, don't daydream, don't do this, don't do that. It seemed to me that that was all wrong and that it was now time to fix all of that. Uh, So maybe one of those don't do this things was don't do drugs, don't smoke pot. it's bad for you. It's a gateway drug. it's yada, 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 and so perhaps one of those ways to defy these people and say, "Screw you was to go smoke some weed and go do your own thing like that's sort of the the first stroke the ground uh breaking thing of saying, "I'm not going to
0: conform anymore. I'm going to go smoke some pot, and then we'll see what happens. yeah, my favorite line in this song now is. See the people standing there who disagree and never win and wonder why they can't get in my door. door. That line wouldn't have stood out to me had I not read some of the history of this song. And I guess Paul and the Beatles in general were open to interacting with fans, and Paul himself would even let people come into his house if they were being nice to him. I read that. That's cool. Can you imagine just going and knocking on Paul McCartney's door and right. being let in? But on this particular line and this particular song, this man did come and knock on his door the night that they were going to record this song, and he came into Paul's house and said, I'm Jesus Christ. And Paul... Paul is quoted as saying, well, I wasn't going to not let him in because he probably wasn't Jesus Christ. <laughs> what if he, but what, what if, if he was? What if he was? <laughs> so so he lets him in, and and he's chatting for a while, and uh, he says, hey, so look, I've got this session I've got to go do, but if you promise to be very quiet and just sit in the corner, you can come in. So this guy comes to the studio while they're recording this song, and he did. He was very quiet. He sat in the corner. He was he was very polite.
3: And Paul like casually introduced him as Jesus
0: Christ. Yeah, like, Paul hey, introduced this is him to guy, the rest I admit,
3: of the Beatles. This is Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> had laugh he introduced the it. rest of the Beatles and they're like, who is that? And he's like, it's Jesus Christ. Yeah, say it the way Paul so, would have said it. <laughs> it's, it's Jesus Christ. Hi <laughs> hey guys, this is Jesus Christ. <laughs> so whether, I don't know if he is or not, but Jesus Christ is sitting in the corner. Man, what a lucky guy. While this song is being recorded. I'm guessing that it wasn't Jesus Christ. Um, I could be wrong. And if he thought he was, I mean, who knows if he actually had the wherewithal to remember this story. And I mean, what if, what if this guy was just high off of his rocker or something like that, and he woke up the next day and, and people were like, what did you do yesterday? And like, I don't know. I, I, I don't even remember. <laughs> Last thing I wanted to say musically about this song is I love George's guitar solo at the 116 to 130 mark i think that the i think that's a really cool addition to this song
3: oh yeah that's great
0: we'll move on to track six this next song is called she's leaving home
4: And cries to her husband, daddy, our baby's gone Why would she treat us so thoughtlessly? How could she do this to me? She, we never thought of ourselves
3: this is a really nice song musically we'll talk about that first and get into the message behind the lyrics it has a very orchestral sound to it i think that really stands out above all else i'm not sure if that's a harp that starts out the song but that that's really pretty i really like uh, that interplay of all the all the instruments in the background, and then even the vocals are very well done with the crispness and, and clarity of the sound. Some of the harmonies—it kind of has a Beach Boys feel to it. I think I told you that uh, when I was listening earlier. As the the s- story goes, the lyrics detail the plight of a, a young woman escaping the control of her parents and it also gives the perspective of the parents in a in a call and response sort of way uh, with the lyrics where the narrator uh, of the song or, or who's telling the story is basically saying that this girl is leaving and then that the rest of the band is is singing in the background from the parents perspective lines like, we gave her most of our lives sacrificed most of our lives we gave her everything money could buy
4: we gave her everything money could buy yeah
0: yeah so it's paul as the narrator and then it's john being the parents voice um, echoing the story there and george and ringo are not present on this song so it's only paul and john It's one of only a few songs that none of the Beatles play an instrument on. Hmm. So you've got Paul and John singing. You've got that small, you were mentioning it, kind of reminding you of something off of Pet Sounds. It's a small orchestral string orchestra in the background. And then just Paul and John singing the words to this.
3: Yeah, it's rather contrasting to a lot of the other
0: songs that we've had up to this point. So it, it kind of stands out in that regard. It does, yeah, it definitely stands out in terms of sound on this album. And even if we included the fifth Beatle, George Martin, he was also not involved in this song. And that almost created a rift between George and Paul, George Martin Mm. and Paul, because um, George would often be the one that would at least score something like Mm -hmm. this. And Paul did ask George to do this song, but George was already committed to another artist recording session, And instead of waiting, Paul enlisted the help of another composer and presented it to George the next day. And that's something that really hurt George Martin. And he admitted even years later Hmm. that the score did hold, hold up, but it was something that he wished that he could have been a part of. Interesting. Should we talk a little bit about the story?
3: Are you talking about Melanie Coe?
0: Yeah. It was something that Paul read on the front page of a newspaper called The Daily Mirror. Okay. He invented most of the content of the song. Um, A lot of it was different. She was I guess I did read
3: that, that it was inspiring to the song, but that a lot of the the lyrics were more fictitious and not designed to put this person out there and and try to predict everything, all the circumstances that surrounded their life.
0: Yeah, the time of day that she supposedly left, um, what her boyfriend did for a living. Yeah, that's, um, that's know, the, what I the was man reading. man from the motor trade was, mm-hmm. was uh, the line in the song. And and I think uh, Melanie Coe's boyfriend was a croupier, whatever that is. So, difference, but yeah, it was right. nonetheless inspired by actual events. So,
3: people read into the lyrics and really tried to, to say that they were word for word, literal, and supposed to parallel the the disappearance of this Melanie Coe, but I think they've come out and defended the song and said, well, no, that was something we read that
0: inspired the song, but that it wasn't supposed to be taken so seriously. Yeah, and then another really interesting thing about Coe is by complete coincidence, she had actually met Paul McCartney three years earlier. Oh, that's right, I did see that. In 1963, he had chose her as a prize winner in a dancing contest on some sort of, TV program and she didn't even know the song was about her until her mom brought it up. Her mom said, "You know this that song's about you, right?" And she said, "No." And then somehow she was able to verify or, or I don't know exactly the story about how she was able to verify that that's what what the song was about. I think it was because at some point Paul mentioned that this newspaper article inspired the song and then her mom put two and two together watching this interview from paul and that's uh that's how melanie came to understand that this was actually about her but it was years later i think that she realized that but it's just so interesting that they already had some connection that of course paul didn't know about and ended up in a song later for a different reason just an interesting story there yeah very coincidental
3: All right, well, let's move on to track number seven. I know this is one of your favorites, Trevor, and it, it definitely grew on me, too. It's a fun one. This is titled Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite.
4: And Mr. H will demonstrate Ten somersets he'll undertake On solid ground Being some days in preparation A splendid time is guaranteed for all And tonight Mr. Kite is topping the bill
0: well, up to this point in the album, we've had a song inspired by a children's drawing, a newspaper article, and then this one is inspired by a poster that John Lennon happened upon when he was filming a promo video for Strawberry Fields Forever at the time. And it's a poster from 1843, advertising a performance in Rockdale by Pablo Frank's Circus. And the cool thing about this song is that just about every line from the song is pulled directly off of words on this poster, which I thought was really, really amazing.
3: Yeah, it was super creative to not simply take that idea and write a song about it, but to incorporate all those different elements into the song. And this one has a, a very
0: carnival-like uh, feel to it. Oh, yeah. I mean, he does such a great job of blending those sounds together. This this is ended up being... I mean, I can't... There's a song on this... Album that I think a lot of people would agree is one of the greatest Beatles songs ever. But I have to say that this might be my second favorite song on the album just because of that creativity and, and the fact that the, the sound matches the story behind it. And that's what's been so cool about diving into this album is the stories have really brought some of these songs to life for me. I don't know that I would have loved it. I would have said, oh, OK, it's a carnival song. But to know that it was inspired by an actual poster and that the words are on the poster basically line by line creating the song uh, really endeared this one to me. And I I think after all of that being said, this is my at least my second favorite song.
3: Yeah, I I think I think what you're saying is when you when you know the the backstory to it and and the creativity behind the making of the song, it, it almost makes you appreciate the art a little bit more. You know the the song is the same. You know, the lyrics are the same, the The music, the listening experience doesn't really change. But when you know that it was based on this poster from 1843, uh, it really makes you appre- appreciate the, the artist a little bit more for, for being able to write that song.
0: And it, it kind of adds to the song as a whole. I especially like, and I guess this is the one part that wasn't verbatim on the poster. The horse was not named Henry, but I love that part that says... And of course, Henry the Horse dances the waltz. And then you actually hear the music start going into more of that waltz sound.
4: Henry the Horse dances the waltz.
3: Yeah, the, the music's kind of all over the place. I mentioned it has that carnival feel to it. It, it gets a little, a little trippy, a little chaotic at times too. Not like a fun, relaxed simple playful childish carnival but almost like a fast-paced it made me think of being lost in a, a trippy bounce house or being stuck on this slightly evil carousel that starts going too fast or in the wrong directions or something and you're all over the place and, and there's all these sounds it's intriguing and, and disorienting yeah I mean it pulls yeah. you in, but it's, it's disorienting and it's a, it's a little unsettling it's a little uncomfortable you know it's, it's very engaging and it's very intriguing but then you, you get sucked so far into it that you're kind of like, how do I get out of here? I mean, like, I want to make sure there's an escape button on what's going on right now because... Oh, that's a good way to describe it. You know, it, like, yeah. I'm enjoying it, but what if I can't get out? This
0: is this is kind of <laughs> crazy. <laughs> you know, that's how that's how I kind of felt when I was listening to it. Yeah, the way you're describing that reminds me, too, about how it was recorded because this was a really complicated one for them to get right, and it was ultimately completed when engineer Jeff Emmerich just took a bunch of the recorded tapes and just spliced them all together to finally make this song work. It was more like a construction project than it was a performance, this song. Mm -hmm. And I think that almost makes you... That almost fits what you're talking about, where it's like you're running into a bunch of dead ends because every little part of the song is like a trapped box that you're in as opposed to just this one open space that was a recording so it's it does kind of have that claustrophobic or disorienting feel in in addition to that carnival sound john was never real happy with it and as has become a bit of a theme here he said that he wasn't proud of his vocals and he said he was just going through the motion because he knew they needed a new song for Sgt. pepper at the moment but I think it's perfect. I really like the way that he sounds on it.
3: Yeah, it's, it's definitely a fun track. The The vocals have a theatrical feel to them, almost Broadway-esque in a way. So that was definitely different.
0: Yeah, and it almost sounds like he's a little, little bit amplified, like he's talking into a megaphone or something like that. But that as fits he's...
3: with the, the song, though, with the, exactly, the theme of the yeah. and everything.
0: Yeah, he's announcing, you know, the mm-hmm. Hendersons will all be there. He's doing this whole this whole presentation part of it. I mean, it, you know, it's like he's Mr. Kite in a way, as he's the MC of this whole charade. Yeah, the
4: Hendersons will all be there, later Pablo Frank is there. What a scene! Over men and horses, hoops and garters, lastly, through a hogshead of real fire.
3: Yeah, because if you think about it, carnivals are always over the top and animated and very extra. The MC would be not speaking in his normal voice. He would be trying to get the crowd amped up and uh, really playing off of the enticement of the acts that are about to perform and things of that nature. So it only makes sense for the vocals in this song to
0: be a little enhanced as well um, to fit the feel. And then I have to mention, this part is verbatim. These lyrics are exactly off of the poster. So most of them he would like take little parts of, but over men and horses, through hoops and garters, and lastly through a hogshead of real fire. I guess a hogshead is like a barrel. So this was an actual presentation for this circus performer, somebody that was going to jump through this barrel of fire, mm-hmm. I suppose. Yeah. Quite the daredevil.
3: Hmm. Something else kind of cool that I want to mention here before we, we move on to the next track. For the benefit of Mr. Kite is acted out and performed in the Cirque du Soleil Beatles-based uh, production called Love. Yeah, I've seen that. Have you? Very cool. Uh, it's really
0: cool. I've seen yeah, Cirque du Soleil really one cool.
3: time. I think I went to
0: Mystere uh, with my folks, which was really awesome as well. But They're all amazing, but... That's cool. If you as a music lover you would love this one the best i've seen a few of them now and this is this one tops it for me just because of that and i would say i'm a beatles fan like anybody else is um but not i mean to the extent mm-hmm. that some people are yeah and i just left that just going god this music is amazing that's awesome and just watching people do all these things and and this i mean this is the if you're gonna do a circus ole show about beatles you know this song is going oh, to be in course, there. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. As that I was, understand, awesome. there
3: are trampolines involved.
0: Oh, there's trampolines, yep. The Hendersons were all there. Let's, let's were there any horses on stage? I don't know if there were horses. There weren't any actually live horses, okay. but I'm sure they had, like, some horse, you know, construction things that they all put together. And, yeah, it was, it was really cool. Yeah, the Cirque H- du Soleil recommend.
3: always does it over the top. I mean, you're, oh, you're, yeah. you're bound to be entertained. Wherever, wherever you go, whichever show you see. But this one is at the, the Mirage. They've been doing it since 2006, so closing in on on 20 years. Yeah, I'll have to go, put that on my, my list of things do to it. do once I'm able to travel to Vegas again sometime. I can't remember the last time I've
0: been there. Well, we've reached the halfway point of the record at this point, so let's flip it over and we'll listen to side two. The first song is called Within You Without You.
8: I'm Brad Page from the I'm In Love With That Song podcast, and yeah, I'm happy to come and talk about the Sgt. Pepper album. I'm a big Beatles fan, and big fan of this album. It's hard to pick a favorite song from this record because there's just so much great stuff on it. But, this may be a controversial pick, but my favorite song just might be Within You Without You, the George Harrison contribution to the album. Musically, it's really inventive. There were pop and rock songs before it that used the sitar, but in those songs, it's used more like a sound effect or just a little exotic spice sprinkled on top. But in Within You Without You, George is actually taking the fundamentals of Indian music and applying it in an all new way. There are no guitars or drums here. It's all traditional Indian instruments like the tampura, the dilruba, the swarmandal, of course the sitar, and then on top of that, He layers a vocal melody that combines both Eastern and Western elements. And he plays around with the time signature in a way that doesn't fit standard Indian or Western music. Really it's a singularly unique piece of music. Really underappreciated, I think. And now that we're talking about it, I think I'll add this song to my list of songs to explore on my podcast. So thanks.
0: So anybody that knows anything about the Beatles' history leading up to this album, this is, of course, very obviously the song written by George Harrison. George is playing a variety of instruments on this song, and there are a number of session musicians on this track. There are no other Beatles, however, on this song. This song was written after George spent six weeks of meditation in India with his mentor Ravi Shankar in 1966. And so it incorporates a lot of the ideas from Hindu philosophy and teaching of the Vedas. It's
3: definitely a major change of pace from Mr. Kite. It's also very contrasting to the
0: traditional Beatles sound
3: as a whole. It probably stands out from their entire discography.
0: Some of this... Indian influence did show up on other albums, but yeah, definitely it makes it very clear that this is a George Harrison song. the
10: the 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 words are
0: kind of a paraphrase of statement that you might find in a lot of different religions and maybe the most familiar to Western religions are Matthew 16, 26, in the Bible, where Jesus says, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? I really like the first chorus. Try to realize it's all within yourself. No one else can
3: make you change. And to see you're really only very small, and life flows on within you and without you. you know, there's definitely some, some wordplay going on there with the idea of life flowing within and without you, meaning that there's energy within you that helps sustain life but there's also energy everywhere else in the world and there's life without you so when you're no longer here life will carry on so it it almost symbolizes the importance of you and your being while also acknowledging the smallness to you or the the lack of necessity of of you being around in order for life itself to carry
4: on
9: Hi, my is Elijah Hernandez, and
4: uh, I love Within You Without You on Sgt. Peppers because I think it's
0: very experimental, I love the psychedelia of it, I think it's criminally underrated, and uh, just George's experimentation with Indian music, and that um,
9: right before the bridge, that swell of um, instruments is just amazing. Uh, I think it doesn't get the credit it deserves, and um, I think it should be listened to
1: by a lot more people. And yeah, Sgt. Pepper is definitely one of the
4: most influential and amazing albums ever made, so yeah. Take care everyone.
0: Yeah, I mean a lot of really deep messages in this song and and this was so important to George at this time. I think we had talked in the history that George had mentioned that his heart was really still there in India when they had sat down to record this album and this song is in such stark contrast to you know the song before it as you mentioned but even the album as a whole but i think the other beatles recognized that that was important to george to put something like this song on the album i think we also talked about how they decorated the studio at the time that they were recording this with all these indian carpets and i I think gotta give the other members of the band credit i mean they weren't even on this song here's paul trying to shoehorn this concept album theme of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And then you got your bandmate George saying, yeah, but I got this. I'm, I'm presenting this to, to you guys. Mm-hmm. And I do have to give Paul credit because at some point, I think Paul had to look at what the other Beatles were bringing to the table and went, okay, it's going to be a very loose concept with Sgt. <laughs> Pepper. And, and I'm glad that he let them have their own space to be themselves. I mean, I think you got to go... One way or the other on that, you either need the whole band super committed to the idea of this concept, or you kind of have to just let it go and, and recognize that it's the Beatles and everybody in the group has their place, and this was George's place. I'm glad that he got a chance to do that.
3: Yeah, I think we mentioned at some point either in the history or early on that we were going to talk about how technically it's one, one of the first concept albums, but it's not really a full concept album the way we would think, where there's general unifying themes and the songs that connect and lyrics that really are required in order for various other tracks on the album to work. With this album, it's conceptual in the fact that we have this fictitious band and the members are experimenting with different sounds and they're taking on these characters and using these alter egos in order to... Get outside of that box that maybe they had been put into as the Beatles and give them that freedom to express themselves in other ways so therein lies the concept but if you look at this album as a whole from start to finish it has a lot of standalone tracks that really don't need the other tracks to be hits or or to be complete uh, in their own right what really ties it together is the introduction of the band at the beginning and then we'll see again at the end of the album with it having that live concert feel and the entertainment piece of it. It's its more all those intangibles that make it conceptual by design, but lyrically and from a message standpoint, it's not a super deep album with all of these cryptic lyrics that you have to untangle and, and piece together into this big conceptual idea like we might think of with uh, some modern-day concept albums.
0: Yeah, both the sound from track to track and and the words don't really necessarily tie together as one, but I think that the concept came a little bit more clear for me just knowing the stories because you kinda get to I mean the the unifying piece to all of this is is the Beatles. It, it's their mm-hmm. it's their characters and it's who they are and um, knowing how the relationship between one is affecting the other and what they're going through. So that's what was fun to me and, you know, thinking about what George was inspired by and where his heart was at the time that he decided to put this song on there and, and knowing that the other Beatles let him do that or or maybe wanted him to do that i think is what makes the song compelling
3: yeah i mean this is his part of the story right like right. this is what he was going through in his transformation away from the identity that was the beatles cuz when you're in a band and you get wrapped up in touring and making music maybe in a way you lose a little bit of who you are individually and aside from the the band and the making of the music for for george it seems like this was a pretty significant part of this period in his life and shaping who he was as a person who he became so this was his way of expressing it through song and because of that it it fits on the album and ties into
0: that initial concept that we outlined absolutely and even george at the end of this song he recognized like okay these are pretty heavy-handed lyrics and he was a little bit afraid that it might come off as arrogant or finger wagging to people Mm -hmm. that were listening Mm -hmm. So it was his decision to add the laughter at the end of the song to kind of lighten the mood and assure listeners that he wasn't taking himself too seriously. And that leads into the levity of the next track, which is track nine. And this song is called When I'm 64.
4: When I
2: get older, losing my head, many Hi, this is Pam, and I happen to be Trevor's mom, and I feel so lucky to have been alive when the Beatles came on the scene. I was a little bit on the younger side, but loved them. Uh, I love Paul McCartney, and I've had the privilege of seeing him in concert in his early 70s, twice, and was blown away by his talent, his energy, and how gracious he was on stage with the audience. And I think, as I'm in my early 60s, On the *Sgt. Pepper album, I like When I'm 64 the best. I know that it's one of the first songs he wrote at age 14, so maybe he was thinking 50 years ahead, which is kind of an interesting thing for a 14-year-old to do. The sound of it is kind of childlike and whimsical, but it also has heart and depth.
3: So back to the circus we go for track nine here with (laughs) some of those playful sounds and instrumentation and even even the the vocals and singing has that lighthearted carnival kind of feel to it which makes sense because this song was written by McCartney at the age of 14 so it's only appropriate for it to be fairly simplistic by design. It's a song that's aimed chiefly at parents and uh, this idea of what happens as we age. The song was recorded around the same time that McCartney's father had turned 64. So it seemed only appropriate for him to call the song When I'm 64 in
0: reference to when he's his dad's age. Yeah, and the sound of his voice, too, was made to sound even younger by speeding up the tape. So... Right,
3: yeah, some process called Verispeeding.
0: Yeah, very, yeah varying the speed, um, so okay, just making gotcha. sure that, yeah his voice was a little bit raise little the bit pitch higher. a little bit yeah just to make mm-hmm. him sound again like that and yeah his dad yeah had turned to make 64. him sound
3: closer to age fourteen right you know, right so. it's cool that they're not only using a bunch of different instrumentation and and uh, experimenting in that way but they're also trying to alter their voices and doing as much as they can to enhance the album manipulate sounds and and try to put as many finishing touches on it as possible given the time and you know with the the tools that they had access to at that at that uh, era
0: yeah and they were really throwing themselves full force into that as they had decided to stop touring and as they were coming off the heels of you know the beach boys doing that with pet sounds and brian wilson and the wrecking crew and you know they just decided they were going to bury themselves in the studio they had unlimited money and time and playing with everything here and varying tape speed and different instrumentation and all of these things they wouldn't have done on prior albums. Be One interesting side note I found on this song is on May 17, 2006 Paul and his then wife Heather Mills had separated and Paul McCartney turned 64 about a month later, on June eighteenth, two thousand six. So, in effect, the answer to his musical question with regards to his wife at the time would have been no.
3: I read about that too, and in fact, uh, it was an emphatic no because I think she ended up getting close to forty million
0: or something in the divorce. Oh yeah, yep. Yeah. The other thing that I thought was really interesting, I just never had occurred to me before, is. Part of the charm of the song is the whole thing is actually supposed to be a marriage proposal. Give me your answer, you know, fill in a form, mine forevermore, the form of course being a wedding contract. That just flew over my head. I never really thought of this as a wedding proposal before, did
4: you? No, I wouldn't have thought that either,
3: but I did, I did read that. Those are those interesting tidbits that make you appreciate the songs even more, like we had mm-hmm. talked about earlier. You, know, you go back a second, third time, and it kind of speaks to you a little differently.
0: Yeah, for sure. Or
3: you listen for certain things to try to understand
0: uh, that part of it. This is one more little quote I thought was really funny, but in that same Playboy article in 1980... They asked John who wrote When I'm 64, and John Lennon said, Paul's completely, I would never dream of writing a song like that. <laughs> they had such an interesting relationship. I, I'm yeah. sure there was you know, friendship. Yeah, their, and their
3: personalities and writing styles yeah, were yeah. definitely contrasting, but it was almost like what each of them needed for the, for the other person to really flourish.
0: What was created between the two of them couldn't have existed without the two of them together. I mean, it was like throwing two things in a pot that you would have never put together because they were so different, but they had that history. They had some of those common connecting events in their life that we talked about with James Campion on our prior episode of their mothers and finding love at the same time and all of those things that made Paul and John deeply, deeply connected. But there was some jealousy and competition, which I think some of was probably good for them from a songwriting standpoint. But so different on how they approach songs.
3: Well, track 10 is another fun one. This song is titled Lovely Rita. Lovely Rita. This is a song that surprisingly became one of my favorite on the album, The More I Listened. Oh, yeah. and it's not one that I was real familiar with beforehand. And you know, When we started out this project on first listen through, tracks one, two, and three really popped out. I, I remember those well, and that cluster kind of stood out as the best part of the album if I had to break it down into quarters and say which section I liked the most. Then throughout the rest of the album, there's a few standout tracks that... I think, keep my interest and in, in, uh, level of enjoyment up from that initial peak of having those first few tracks. And, and one of them uh, we already talked about with For the Benefit of Mr. Kite. And the, the next one here is lovely Rita. But this song is is just really fun. I didn't know the the backstory with Paul discovering that in America we call female traffic wardens, uh, meter maids. And that just kind of tripped a funny bone in him that, that inspired him to write a song about it and kind of flipped the whole persona of this, this meter maid from a person you don't want to see because it probably means you're in trouble. They're putting a, a parking ticket on your car. So somebody that you have this, uh, antagonistic, uh, character, built around into somebody that that you're attracted to and that you kind of get excited and your eyes light up when, when this sexy meter maid lady comes around and puts a ticket on your car and, you know, you want to court her and, and, and play with it and have some fun
0: with, with the whole, whole idea of that. Yeah. There's a little bit of kind of like a dominatrix fantasy going on with that. This woman in some position of power because she's the one writing you a ticket. Punish me, meter maid. <laughs> yeah, looking, looking a bit like a military man, as it says in the lyrics.
4: There's
0: something a little bit uh, domineering about that. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. I love the fact that Paul hadn't heard that before, and he just thought that that was a really funny way to describe. Yeah, you said, like, it tripped his funny bone. I think that's a good way to describe it. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the fact, too, that you have to have a British accent to be able to say, lovely Rita Mita maid, and have it become a, a rhyme. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, it worked out perfectly. I think the story was that Paul had written the song about a meter maid who was speculated to have been named Mita Davies. Who gave him a parking ticket outside of the recording studio where most of Sgt. Pepper was recorded. And when asked about why he called her Rita instead, McCartney just responded and said, Well, she looked like a Rita to me.
3: I read that too, but then wasn't there some other story or quote kind of dispelling that uh I think idea so, yeah. That I, there wasn't actually a, a lady that was that it was more, you know, something that he came up with in his head based on
0: the idea. Yeah, I think that there's there's some discrepancy about whether or not there was actually a meter made and this was being a real story. I
3: mean, who knows after 60 years, I I doubt they journaled about every single thing that inspired them and all the events and whatnot. I mean, there's things that happened five years ago that were significant in my life that I've forgotten all the details about. So just because you wrote a song about it doesn't mean you're going to remember every little thing. So maybe they don't even know at this
0: point to give an accurate answer. It could be. We talked about how when we did our episode on Deja Vu that the Grateful Dead was in a studio just next door recording American Beauty and how it wasn't uncommon that some of these bands from the time would make their way into each other's studios. And on this particular song, one of the sessions anyway, was accompanied by Tony Hicks of the Hollies, Graham Nash's uh, former band, and David Crosby actually as well, who would have been with the Birds at the time. And it was reported that Crosby actually contributed vocals to this song, but there's so many layers in the mix that you really can't even hear if his voice was one of the ones that made it on the... I don't even think David Crosby knows for sure if his voice is on this song or not, but he was there for one of the sessions anyway. (laughs) ¶¶
3: my favorite verse on this song is verse 2. Took her out and tried to win her. Had a laugh and over dinner. Told her I would really like to see her again. Got the bill and Rita paid it. You know, of course, because she's the the meter late lady. She's got all the money and (laughs) she's been represented as this powerful domineering, as you uh, mentioned, person here. So even though Paul's taking her out, she's still kind of taking the lead. Took her home. I nearly made it. Uh, a clever way of saying he almost was able to hook up with Rita, thinking he's inside her home. They had this date, and his fantasy's about to come to life. But then it finishes by saying, sitting on the sofa with a sister or two. Yeah. So he makes it back, and he's he's on the couch hanging out with her sisters, and Rita is off to do whatever.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a very imaginative story, isn't it? It's just, it's just really Interesting thing to write a song about. To add to just kind of the looseness of the story, musically, there's that kazoo sound mm-hmm. in there. And did you read about how they were able to create that effect? No,
3: I was wondering what that was.
0: That was a last minute edition. It wasn't actually a kazoo. And they decided they wanted this sound for the song. So the Beatles told the roadie Mal Evans to go retrieve the newspaper from the bathroom in EMI Studios and then they cut it and threaded it into a hair comb and then blowed it on the hair comb oh, to create that wow. sound I'm sure if they had an extra day they would have had an actual kazoo but because they were trying yeah. to get it in the moment they're like go grab some paper from the bathroom and we'll create an instrument for the song so with all the money in production and it's the Beatles the kazoo sound was a newspaper that people were reading while on the can well it worked
3: out you know and the way the way paul sings too has this story feel to it you know it's not like he's singing too much you know it's more spoken word took her out and tried to win her yep. had a laugh and over dinner you know it just kind of sounds like he's got a crowd of people and he's telling this story of the the meter maid you know like gather around guys you gotta you gotta hear what happened i met this lady and here's how the story goes it has that playful feel too and i like that so funny i love the looseness of this one yeah it it, it's a really fun song and we didn't even talk about the the opening i I love the opening music um, to the track to start the song oh yeah and then uh it it transitions into that funky piano part but but first uh, they say, Rita. And then, you know, it goes. That's right. And it starts right. playing all the funky piano stuff. Rita.
0: It's just a fun, lighthearted song. And just the... The flip of phrase and that that internal rhyme of lovely Rita, meet a maid, I think is just so mm-hmm. creative and just a fun song. Well, we got a few left. We're going to move on to track 11 now. If you're falling asleep on us, it's time to wake up. This is <laughs> Good Morning, Good Morning.
4: Good morning
5: nothing to say but one. hi folks this is steve gerrard from the listen next channel on youtube and i always like the beatles when they get a little bit weird and on good morning good morning they manage to get weird in all kinds of ways for two and a half minutes without it being overwhelming you've got that vocal refrain which was taken from the breakfast commercial You've got the shifting time signatures, Paul's weirdly amazing guitar solo in the riddle. Ringo's drums make a big part of this track. And then just throw in some animal samples and a brass section and what more could you want?
3: So this is another track with a little backstory to it. Uh, John Lennon was inspired to write the song Good Morning, Good Morning, after watching a television commercial for Kellogg's Cornflakes. The jingle from that commercial was adapted for
0: the song's refrain. That's right, I love the fact that again, we've got the child's drawing, we've got the poster, we've got the news story, and she's leaving home, and now of course we've got this cornflakes commercial. commercial. John's good singing lead, lead on this song, of course, he's harmonizing with himself on this one, and John had said this was a throwaway piece of garbage, I always thought. He said the good morning, good morning was from that Kellogg's cereal commercial, and he just said he had always had the TV on really low in the background when he was writing and it just came over and that's when he wrote the song.
3: It's definitely not one that stands out on the album, but it's fun. It's a it's a cool song. I like the, the rooster with the cock-a-doodle-doo in the background. That's something that symbolizes morning. You know, you're growing up on a farm. That's your alarm clock and that rooster will wake you up at at sunrise and then
0: you know it's time to hit the field and do some chores that's right and then you had told me about how all those animals that come at the end you were kind of joking like if they were really trying to stick it to pet sounds they really made sure they did so at the end of this one you got
3: (laughs) yeah if they were inspired by that they they definitely uh, overdid it on here
0: Uh, that's exactly right you've got cat you've got dog you got sheep there's elephant on this song Pig, horse, tiger, and fox being chased on a hunt. Oh, there's cow and hen, and all of these were pulled from the Abbey Road tape library, so there weren't any actual elephants in the studio.
3: Yeah, and it almost sounded like, like fireworks, and a, a little kid just putting the, pushing the button on all these sounds. It wasn't even cohesive, where one was lacing into the next. It just sounded like a, a <laughs> calamity of, of pet noises and uh, animals making sounds in the background. This is another one I think I mentioned earlier with, for the benefit of Mr. Kite and feeling like. It was fun and exciting, but you needed to have an escape button. This is one too where I was listening and I was very intrigued, but then I kinda of wanted it to stop. <laughs> like it was it was enough, you know. I was ready for that to be done. If that would have kept going, it would have been a little troubling, I think, to handle all those animals.
0: Yeah.
3: It just like felt like it was getting closer and closer and kind of trapping <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> you in this room with all these animals attacking or something.
0: I had read that Paul had mentioned later, after John had died, that he was speculating that he thought John was feeling kind of trapped in suburban life, and things with his wife at the time, Cynthia, weren't going super well, and things just felt really boring. The references to um, Meet the Wife is actually a TV show that was popular at the time, and afternoon TV, and I think Paul had said that he thought John was bored, but also there maybe were some alarm bells about just the state that his life was in at the time and not being super happy about it.
4: Nothing has changed, it's still the same. I've got nothing to say, but it's okay. Good morning, good morning, good morning.
0: God. At the end, the good morning is actually switched to German words, guten morgen, which is German for good morning. Why they decided to do that, I'm not sure. Not to mention the fact that you can't even really tell that it's a switch because they're saying that so fast, and it blends with the chickens cl- clucking at the same time.
3: <laughs> Maybe that's why they switched to German. Maybe yeah, it, it was like be. preference of the animals in the room or something.
0: The the, the animals wanted it to I be in think, German? Yeah, I
3: think so. Their recommendation. <laughs> I think they wanted it to be finished in Germany because the animals probably came from Germany and they didn't understand English, so, you know, they had to make them feel
0: comfortable in the studio. Yeah, it could be. I I didn't realize that uh, they were German-speaking chickens, but maybe so. so. I mean, I've seen Spanish-speaking
3: dogs, so it wouldn't uh, surprise me.
0: (laughs) You want to (laughs) transition out of this one? I don't even know how to get out of that. (laughs) yeah well who knows why
3: they decided to to do that but I thought it was kind of fun I didn't pick up on it right away um, because like you were saying there's all the animals in the background and when you sing it especially with their accent good morning in English and guten morgen and and German uh, don't sound entirely different enough for you to pick up on the switch but I went back and listened to it and and uh I had to smile because I had a A coworker living out in North Carolina back in 2015, who was from Germany, so she taught me a little bit of German, um, just the basics. And so I would, I would always give her my best attempt in the morning at saying "Guten Morgen" when Hmm. I would show up to
0: work. You could have fit right in. You got it. My top picks for Sergeant Pepper would be, not necessarily in this order good morning, good morning, a day in the life and getting better. Why that is? You know, I always have a hard time finding words that really uh, do justice, you know, as far as explaining why or how uh, certain music affects me. But yeah, those are my top picks. Let's move on. We are... Heading to the end of the album here. We have a transitionary song that ties the first half to the second half of the album, and we're visiting Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band again. This one is Reprise.
3: wrapping up the album with that concert feel. We had, the, we had the opening track where they introduced the band. Now they're thanking the audience for attending the show. You know, I think this is a, a, a nice segue to the, the album's uh, finale, the song that we'll, we'll talk about here in a minute. Musically, this is a little different than the opening track. I, I like that, that touch of the one, two, three, four... It's a little faster pace, and yeah, I think quicker. it's a little bit more yep. upbeat. The rock flair was a little bit stronger on this one. It was it was almost like you know the opening track was sort of laced with the uncertainty of how this concert or this show might go. Introducing themselves as this fictitious band, and and they know they're about to introduce some new sounds and different different styles of music, and, and the intent was to kind of take their project in a different direction. So there's that apprehensiveness getting onto stage introducing yourself, knowing that, you know, it could go any number of ways, but by the end here, there's more confidence to this feel when, when they're saying we're Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. We hope that you enjoyed the show. You know, they're saying that, you know, that line, we hope you enjoyed it, but there's this, this confidence behind it. Like we know you enjoyed the show because we just, we just killed it. We just put on a great performance. We did all these great tracks. And so there's, there's almost this more of a, a closure to this, even though it's not drastically different from the first, it kind of feels like, Hey, we did it. We made it to the end. You know, you're welcome.
0: Interesting. Yeah. You, you put a lot more thought into that than me. I just was thinking, okay, this is sort of a filler to try to tie those two ends together. Yeah, definitely. It's faster, you know, a little bit um, harder. There's, there's no brass in this one. So all the horns and stuff are stripped away. It's a little bit shorter, but yeah, I didn't really think about any, particular meaning by that sound change or what that might signify in this fictitious band. That's that's interesting. I always kind of skipped past this one.
3: It uh, wasn't any of the Beatles members' idea to put this on there. It was actually uh, written after their road manager, Neil Aspinall, um, suggested that they should have it because the, the fictional band that was introduced at the beginning, needed to make an appearance at the end That's to right. kind of complete the the live concert performance feel to make it a little bit more of a, a concept album and finish the record.
0: And they wanted to segue all the songs one into the next and they were only able to accomplish it with the first song, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band into Little Help for My Friends and now from the reprise into the final track. And this is a song that, most Beatles fans are going to know. A Day in the
4: Life. Yo,
7: it's Dude from the Album Nerds Podcast. I'm here to talk about my favorite song from Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. That is the final track A Day in the Life. I grew up my parents played the Beatles a lot, so I was always into it. When I was early teens, my dad was doing some uh, transfer of final records over to cassette. So I sat down and, and really listened to this album for the first time from start to finish. And, you know, I loved it. I uh, The f- songs were fun. And then it kind of ends uh, with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band reprise. When they're saying, you know, show's over. Thanks for listening. And then this applause fades out. So I thought the record was done. So to my surprise, and he fades his piano, and you hear John's famous line, I read the news today, oh boy. And just the production was so out there from anything I had listened to before. So much chaos going on, uh, the sound of this orchestra was just swirling, this chaotic world, and then in comes Paul with this little piano piece, and then woke up, got out of bed, dragged a comb across my head, bringing us back to you know regular life bad stuff happens but life goes on right so that's what i was kind of leaning from that song and then john's repeating this line i'd love to turn you on likely a drug reference album was recorded in 1967 so kind of comes with the territory but for me that's not what i interpreted i was i guess too innocent for that at the time that final piano chord at the end of the song that e chord It feels final, like final, final, which is what made me desperately want to flip the record over and listen again. A day in the life, listen to it, and
0: then start the record over. I don't even know how to start this one. This is definitely, when I think of the Beatles, this is one of the songs that you think of right off the top of your head. This was the climax of the album. For that reason, they brought in an orchestra of 40 musicians. They dressed them in tuxedos. But with their tuxedos, they put on some funny hats. And they were told that they had 24 bars to ascend from the lowest note on their instruments to the highest note, which is the E major. And then they were also instructed to start as quietly as they could. And by the end, play as loud as they could. So I just like... Listening to the song, hearing that crescendo, and imagining all of these 40 musicians and this orchestra dressed in tuxedos with funny hats on.
3: Yeah, they went to quite lengths uh to do it right, huh? Yeah, this is where that experimentation really takes hold. I kind of view this track as the the encore. You know, I, I think I think it's the the best ballad on the album, maybe maybe the best track, the best uh put together from from the, the lyrics, the, 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 the meaning behind the song, the music, you know, the whole shebang. You know, fitting into the the theme of the album being a, a concert or a performance. You know, we don't hear it on the album, but I feel like this is this is the part where the fans are chanting, encore, 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 and they come back out and they give them this one last track.
0: Yeah, and the mood of it is so much different than that prior song, too. It kind of reminds me of something more that you might find on like a, the secret track on a CD from when we were kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's like it almost doesn't fit after the upbeat reprise that really is kind of a bookend for the album in a way this does feel almost more like that secret track that would play after you know five minutes of silence or something like that on your cd
3: and it's very much driven by the the vocals and the story uh, in the beginning but then by the middle of the song and then especially toward the end there's that crazy intense music um that you know really feels um you know like there's a, a real strong sense of passion behind the music so there's very good contrast and dynamics from the lyrics and the storytelling to to the way the, the music and uh, the band, all the instrumentation really grabs your attention at other parts of the song.
0: It really does. Well, let's get into the meaning of this song and the inspiration for it. I don't think we've explicitly mentioned it yet, but it was primarily written by John. The bridge of the song was written by Paul, but most of these lyrics are John's. John was inspired by reading... The newspaper, the Daily Mail, and there were two stories that inspired him that just popped up on the headlines for this newspaper. One was the death of Tara Brown, who was the heir to the Guinness, uh, Guinness being the beer, family fortune. He died in a car crash. He was only 21 years old, and he was actually a good friend of the band members.
4: He blew his mind out in a car
0: And then there was another just random newspaper story about these 4,000 holes that was a real story in the Daily Mail about potholes in Blackburn. Simply stating
3: that there was a problem with the road. There were a lot of potholes. Yeah, yeah.
0: 4,000
4: holes. Just
3: contrasting the, the significance of the death of Tara Brown and you know in other news, yeah, four thousand potholes are on our roads in the town, I guess that's a problem, you know there was some line about I don't know how they knew there were four thousand if they counted all of them or or something like yeah, that that's a very uh, specific there was some number. quote, yeah, yeah, for them to to say that, so that caught his attention to some degree, but I think it was more just. Uh, You know, like you were saying The juxtaposition of those two stories About the death of one of your friends Who's also an heir to the Guinness family So this is a pretty monumental thing to happen And then you flip the page And here's this story about 4,000 potholes around town Which is also another problem You know, a fixable problem Unlike the other one that's um, kind of done and out of your control There was something about those two stories That inspired him to write this song
0: did you read how Paul actually the whole time thought that the line about blew his mind out in a car was about something else?
3: Yeah, I think I read that Paul thought it was a, about a guy that
0: took a bunch of drugs and just got high out of his mind. and Right, and and Paul, I think, thought it was a politician that blew his mind out in a car like maybe whether that was with a bullet or with drugs or something like that yeah I have
3: the quote right here Lennon said Tara didn't blow his mind out but it was in my mind when I was writing that verse uh, the details of the accident in the song not noticing traffic lights and a crowd forming at the scene were were simply part of the fiction of the song and then it says meanwhile McCartney offers a different interpretation in my head I was imagining a politician bombed out on drugs who'd stopped at some traffic lights and didn't notice that the lights had changed blew his mind
0: was, was purely a drug reference. Nothing to do with the car crash. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that it wasn't uncommon for John to react with laughter upon something that was very weighty and, and emotional for him because he famously reacted that way on hearing the unexpected loss of his uncle his mother, Julia, as well, and the Beatles' original bassist, Stuart Sutcliffe. So that was just something that John would do when he was feeling emotional, is he would laugh to kind of let off tension. And so that line, well, I just had to laugh, kind of fit John. Um, and it doesn't really mean that he thought it was funny. It, in the reference to how John would actually be responding, it signifies he was emotional about this. To add to the visual ambiance of this song, if you imagine it being recorded in the studio, I mentioned that the orchestra of 40 musicians were wearing tuxedos and hats. I forgot to mention that they were also wearing clown noses and gorilla gloves to create that psychedelic atmosphere and look. It was intended to be part of a TV special that at some point was going to be about the making of the album, but they never actually... Put that together and, and created that, but somewhere there's maybe some footage of that, but that's part of why they were all dressed up in this way. And then on top of that, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Donovan, Marion Faithful, Mike Nesmith of the Monkees were all present during this recording. I do want to mention the, uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that I'd like to turn you on was the part that Paul was very pivotal in writing. He was at least involved with John writing that line, with John writing most of the lyrics overall. Of course, another reference that could be drug-related or just something that's kind of enticing and ambiguous um, that could also be sexual or something like that in that way as well. And at the very end... Of the song, a 15 kilohertz tone can be heard just before the end, or I should say, could be heard if you were a dog. That is.
3: Wait, I could hear it. Could you hear it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, you can't hear it.
0: I don't know. I it it depends on the particular part. It's a very high pitched, very high pitched sound. My dog. Yeah, I didn't hear it it when I was first listening, but
3: I played it. I could hear it. It's just a very, very high screechy sound
0: i'll have to go back and, and listen specifically to see if i can hear it i did notice that my dog bowie perked up during that part. Oh, i made sure to yeah. play that to see if he would did he bark or just no he just his ears pulled just his ears back stuck up yeah uh-huh yeah <laughs> and then you get this warped loop of the words never could be any other way that's paul saying that but a tweaked audio of that and then john saying been so high layered that over part that. is
3: really trippy that
0: <laughs> yeah and it Man. just continues several times yeah. is trippy enough when we're listening to it on a streaming service like uh, I think on vinyl I it,
3: it just keeps going right it Until does. You lift yeah the needle. that
0: that very last circle on a vinyl record is a complete loop and so when it drops into that it's kind of like what we were talking about with in our day of that secret song or something like that that's something that uh, an artist could put on there if they wanted to be creative is to have something on loop like that most of them it just sets into that and then you just hear that kind of staticky sound of it just spinning and that's your indication that it's time to flip the record over yeah man you said I your dad I couldn't got take this more one, than right? 5 or 10 seconds of it yeah he does yeah you should have him play that and see if, if uh, his record I mean I guess it would it, it should have that
3: yeah yeah, I bet. I bet it would. I bet he can't hear the, the, the high-pitched sound though.
0: <laughs> That's probably right. somehow, Shane, despite COVID and everything else, we've made it to the end of did it. quite an iconic album indeed. What was your experience listening to this with intention this last month?
3: Man, it was, it was a lot of fun. I, I listened to it multiple times before I decided to start reading up on it because I didn't want to be too biased with my experience uh, surrounding the album. And it was a lot of fun i think that's the first word that that comes to mind from opening track it really feels like a like a concert like a party it's uh, it's very upbeat lots of sounds lots of instrumentation lots of experimentation a lot of variety of, of vocals and and contribution from all the the beatles members so overall it has a lot of variety a lot of diversity in the music and the song and the lyrics to learn about all the backstories and connect the dots. I kind of feel privileged in a way um, to know this album a little bit more than the average listener, a lot more than I knew it before, and and uh, it, it it feels more meaningful. There's more weight and significance uh, to the album as a whole and to the tracks now, knowing um, some of the the inspirations and some of the the fun facts and tidbits surrounding it um, from the production to what what led to some of the lyrics and and just some of the trivial things that that we've gone through on this podcast. So overall, one that we knew we would have to do eventually and, and one that I enjoyed and had a lot of fun with. How about you?
0: This is definitely an album that I knew we were going to tackle on this podcast at some point, And I think the timing of it was perfect in our conversation that we had with James Campion on our bonus episode just prior to this on the song, Hey Jude, which was written very close proximity to the songs that were listed for this album. And so I was really excited to finally tackle an album that I feel like I should have known since I was much, much younger. And despite having known all these songs very well, putting in the context of the album was important. And I'm glad that we really took the time to do that. I'm gonna make reference to a friend of mine Gary, who on Facebook often entertains me by putting these questions out to people that say, you know, overrated, underrated, or properly rated. I'm always taken aback by the fact that a lot of people don't do that assignment very well. If they like something, they'll say underrated. If they don't like something, they'll say overrated. And I think what he's trying to ask with the question is, if something is rated very high, is that rated properly. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad, is, is it a proper rating? And this album is good um, and I would even say this album is great. I am also going to say from a personal standpoint, I feel like it's a little bit overrated and, and the reason being I suppose is that you can't call this album underrated. It's very very highly rated album by many uh, rated as maybe the best album, but I have to admit I was expecting a little more at least in the context of the album itself. I love the stories. Getting to know the Beatles better was invaluable. But I was expecting a little bit more, I think, from the concept album and to feel like really that Sgt. Pepper was only visited a couple times and the second time was just a reprise or sort of repeat of the same song. I guess I would have preferred them just to say that it's not a concept album, kind of like John Lennon said about it. And frankly, the other Beatles as well didn't really consider it that. So I was a little disappointed to find out that I kind of agreed with the rest of the Beatles, that I didn't feel like this was a concept album. And then I think the other thing that made it hard for me to appreciate as much as I could have is discovering that Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane were left off of this album. And I wanted in my to mention mind, that too. You beat just me to feeling it. Feeling like what could have been and because to me, those two songs would have been a couple of the best songs on this album. And, and they could
3: have been placed almost anywhere because exactly. there, wasn't, there wasn't a specific order. It wasn't like, right. oh man, we want to include them, but where do we put them? Throw exactly. them in anywhere. They, they're kind of standalone tracks like a lot of these. Right. And, uh, based on your criteria of what's over or underrated, yeah, maybe, maybe it is slightly a little overrated. Um, considering the fact that it's number one on some lists and we know exactly. there's some albums that- out there that are super good, you know, like Pet Sounds. I think we both agree that we like that one a little bit more. Yeah. You know, but if you throw the two tracks that were left off on here, then, it, then it's, uh, you know, even better.
0: I'd have Yeah, I'd have to revisit whether or not I would yeah. know, throw that overrated thing out if those were on there or not. I think right. if the concept part existed within the album and Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane didn't fit the concept and they were left off, I would be much more forgiving of it or even if they said well it's not really a concept but we just didn't think that these songs fit with the rest of them in terms of the sound I'd maybe be also able to forgive it a little bit more even if I didn't quite understand that reasoning but I know that the reasoning is because they were looking for singles to sell and that Mm -hmm. George Martin regrets making that decision so if George Martin regrets leaving them off it's just hard for me to feel like what could have right. been with this album, and 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 it just doesn't feel like it lived up quite to what I was expecting it to, like Pet Sounds, I think, did for me, and and uh, you know more. And and I enjoyed this album more as we did it, and I think it's great. But again, it's so highly rated that I think it's impossible for this album to be underrated. And so for me, I kind of have to say it's, it was a little bit overrated to me. It may be a little bit disappointing, even though I th- loved it. If you can wrap your head around both of those those <laughs> statements,
3: well, who who said this was a concept album in the first place? I think that's that's part of what maybe led to the disappointment.
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly Paul, and then beyond that, I think it took on a life of its own with culture and everything else and yeah, deciding sure. that. Mean, so
3: I don't think he would try to convince you that that all the songs are supposed to connect somehow.
0: No, I don't think so. It may be more theme than concept, but... Yeah, so you could yeah. have just
3: been prepped in the wrong way to to expect everything to be unifying when, when, it, when sure. in fact yeah. it wasn't, you know? but yep.
0: Yeah, I'm going to have... I know I'm going to have Beatles fans throw me under the bus for sure, right and left, and I know I deserve it. But this is just my personal feelings on diving into Sgt. Pepper. I was just a little... A little disappointed with that part of it, even though I really enjoyed the process and, and getting to know these backstories and, and the hist- historical significance of it. And I get all of those things. And I'm so glad we did it. But that, that part just left me a little bit wanting more.
3: I think part of it too is when your expectations are are really high when somebody says this is the number 1 album of all time or yeah. So some of that is based on other people's uh expectation and and uh rating and what that kind of does to your mentality uh going into it. It's Especially true. if you're a, a critic and you're somebody that knows good music and has uh gone through a lot of albums over the years like yourself. You know, you have a lot to um compare this one to so you know clearly there's going to be some albums that that stand out as being more complete overall and better as a whole one thing i've i've thought about in regards to this album and and its rating its place uh, in in music culture is that perhaps if you're constructing a list of the greatest 100 albums of all time well you have to think about who the most influential bands or artists were of all time and And clearly, the Beatles are right there. Right. So then you look at their discography and you say, well, of all of their albums, which is the best? And for the longest time, Sgt. Pepper was regarded as the best Beatles album. And, And now I think it's kind of a toss up between that and, and rubber soul, I, I would imagine, you know, maybe gets they a little bit more credit. Rod. you know, is.
0: I think right now the popular answer is revolver. Um, if I'm oh, if i right? Okay. Like revolver my observation in what I'm reading and stuff like that. But you know you, I think I think uh, Abbey Road and the White Album and, and Rubber Soul and Sgt Pepper kinda of all, depending on what year or decade we're reflecting seem to yeah. have a have a place at the top. So I think if you went
3: back and listened to all of those albums and then you came to the conclusion that Sgt. Pepper is the third best Beatles album, well then you could you could confidently say it's it's overrated if it's if it's rated higher than the ones that you think are better. But it would be it would be difficult if somebody came to the conclusion that this is the best overall Beatles album and the Beatles are a band that deserve a place on the top of a list for somebody to knock this down too far. You know, like that would that would be a hard thing to do just because of the the prestige of of the Beatles band and uh, their catalog of music. And I think maybe some of it's because they're not known for this one iconic album or, or two or three major albums. They they put out a ton of albums and a and a bunch of singles. And you know, we just talked about a couple songs that didn't make it on the album. Here, I don't know did did uh, Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane make it on future albums or were they just released together as that single and
0: not as like a studio album they they've been yeah, on compilations right? and stuff like that but I mean yeah I mean we talked with you know James Campion Hey Jude was not exactly, on a studio yeah, album yeah. so I mean just some of these big huge songs where you think right oh, yeah. so,
3: so there's there's definitely something about you know the, the Beatles uh, significant is not only defined by a handful of albums but also by some singles that they put out and by yeah. their entire body of work so you know in a way i think this album sergeant pepper gets a little bit of a boost simply because it's the beatles and because it, it it's monumental in their history as a band and it's and it's very representative of who they were and so because it encompasses and embodies everything that is the beatles it it almost gets a little bump beyond the music and the the song and the lyrics and the concept alone because of the Importance or, or weight of it in the history of music, so I think that's why maybe it gets rated a little bit higher as as a whole than it than it would be if somebody was simply looking at it objectively and just grading the music and the lyrics uh, yeah. and the song, you know, the concept yeah. idea. Maybe it would get a little bit lower rating, but you know, I think I I, I would have to say because it, it it's not number one on on a lot of lists, it, it might be in the top. 10 or 20, um, on a bunch of lists. So maybe it's slightly overrated, but I think I'm, I'm going to have to say that it's, it's fairly rated. It's not under or overrated, but I think it's probably right where it should be. Properly rated. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And all of those things you mentioned matter, you know, the, the historical context and, you know, you can't listen in a vacuum. You, you, you can't divorce something from its time. You can't ignore the fact that this is the first time this artist has done something in this way, you know, and, and maybe somebody else has come, has come out later and, and created something that's technically better using that same process. But person that first does it, that does matter. And, and what it meant to culture at the time, that does matter. So all of those points, I think, were amplified in my experience of dissecting this album, is really understanding what it meant with the culture and stuff. but. That stuff I already expected to be blown away by and interested in. I also expected the objective concept and, you know, and then not knowing about the songs that were left off. So that was the part that just was like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm just left wanting just yeah, this little right. bit more um, from what my expectations were mm-hmm. to start. So, Totally. But I'm so glad we did it. And um, I'm glad that we've got another big one under our belt, Shane. Yeah, wow. We uh,
3: knocked out a Beach Boys album a couple years ago, and then Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young last year, and now a Beatles album. I think uh, next we might have to
0: tackle a Bob Dylan album. I think that sometime would be in awesome. in the near future. That would be great. But the very next one we will do will be a 2022 album, and that'll be your pick, Shane. That's right. I'm excited
3: to share with you my my new pick and start getting
0: into that here pretty soon well we'll jump into that one next but until then everybody thanks for sticking with us this long go listen to a great album peace if you're enjoying listening to
3: album divers you can support our podcast by subscribing reviewing and sharing it with someone
0: else that appreciates great music Follow and connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Album Divers. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback about our take on an album that you already loved or had never heard before. Do you have an album you want us to dive into? Email us at
3: albumdiverspodcastgmail.com at and we'll consider adding it to
0: our queue for a future episode. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you never stop discovering music that moves you to dive deeper. Until next time.